0: Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineco. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started.
1: Hello, listeners. This is Kayla. I am reporting to you alone in the editing booth, and I just wanted to give this little intro into the episode. This is a very long episode. It is a story worth telling, but it can't really be told short. So I have done my best to make it as condensed as possible to make it easy to listen to. I felt weird about breaking it up into two parts because the first part wouldn't have had any toxicology in it, and we already didn't discuss any toxicology in Cyanide Part 1. So, you are now listening to the main channel episode of Jonestown. If you would like all of the details that I had to cut out in an effort to make this as condensed of an episode as possible, then head on over to our Patreon, where there is a Jonestown Director's Cut edition that you can listen to that has More audio extracts from original audio from Jonestown, and it has just a couple more details that I wanted to include, but that ultimately I was able to cut because they weren't key points in the story, although I thought they were interesting. So, whatever you decide to do, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for supporting us here. Thank you for supporting us if you are a patron. Uh, And without further ado, here is Jonestown. So, You've seen how long this outline is. I have. It is much longer
0: than our typical outlines by almost triple. Yeah,
1: yeah. And usually research takes me about two, three weeks. And this i've been I've been researching Jonestown for like six weeks, and I'm so so ready for us to record so we can, like, get it out and get it said and then move on from Jonestown. Like I legitimately had nightmares about town Jonestown. During You were living recent... in, you've I... been living in Jonestown. God and not even like I, I, I keep thinking about like how bad it is to just like research it and be deep into it. It's like, I'm not living it. I get to like leave and go watch TV and like play with my cat. And you know, but
0: you've been, you've been deep in there. I've deep been in the
1: trenches. I've been deep, deep in Jonestown. So for people who may not know, can you tell me what you know about Jim Jones and the Jonestown Massacre? Because it's not a name that's necessarily a household name anymore. So what I know
0: is that Jim Jones was kind of this cult of personality. He was a preacher who wasn't happy with the way that things were in his own church or in churches that he was attending. Mm -hmm. So he decided like, I'm going to make my own church. Mm -hmm. And he basically, I don't, I don't want to say that he fooled people, but he did fool people. Like he Mm -hmm. fooled people into thinking that he was this instrument of God Mm -hmm. that, and he would perform quote unquote miracles. And so he had all of these people hoodwinked and then he got the bright idea of moving his cult, because that's what it was, even if the members at the time didn't really realize it. Mm-hmm. They moved into another country, into Guyana. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yep. Mm-hmm. They moved to Guyana and started their own little like homestead. And long story short, after some of the other members' families wanted to investigate him further, he convinced them that things were going to go down, people are going to come for us, and the only way out is mass suicide. Mm -hmm. And so there were hundreds of casualties, and everybody died,
1: except for a handful of survivors. Right, right. So a couple points. Obviously, there's a lot of content warnings for this episode. I mean, there's cults, there's talk of mass suicide, there's sexual assault. There's like a lot of weird racism and like homophobia and just everything that tends to get wrapped up in cults because this is like almost the worst of the worst. Yeah, um, this is.
0: Yeah, this is like when you think of cults,
1: you think Jones, the People's
0: Temple. Yeah, the People's Temple, and Jonestown, are one of the first that come to mind for me,
1: at least. Right, and then the other thing that I want to mention, just right up top, is. It was constantly called a mass suicide and jones called it revolutionary suicide it was not revolutionary suicide it wasn't even a mass suicide it was a massacre so that's, that's a good point yeah let's all get that's a good point
0: clear because they because they didn't have a choice really like yeah. it was forced upon them mm-hmm. this the the death might have been by a quote-unquote their own hand but it was their hand was forced
1: right Right. And of course, like in the papers, it was sensationalized that he had such a cult of personality that he convinced 918 people to kill themselves. But it's like, and we'll get into it. We'll get deep into it. That was not the case. All right.
0: Before, so who 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 is Jim Jones? And well, who is, where do we start? Where do but, we start, Kayla?
1: We start before Jim Jones was Jim Jones, when he was just little baby Jimmy Jones. In Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> Jones was born on May 13th, 1931, to I think it's Lynetta. She changed her name a couple times. She was Luna and then she was Lunetta. But I think towards the end of her life, she was Lynetta. Lynetta and Jim Jones Sr. And Jim Sr. had been disabled by chemical weapons in World War One and had like lung issues and probably some unaddressed PTSD like he had quite a bit going on wasn't really present in Jones's life and soon after his son was born he had a breakdown that required hospitalization and even from that he never really recovered so was it physical or mental breakdown mental okay yeah yeah So Lynetta had to be the main breadwinner of the family, and, like, this didn't have to be a difficult position for Lynetta because she was strong, she was independent, she was one of those women that, like, if not for her personality, if just for, like, her attributes on paper, she seemed great, she seemed fun, you know, she smoked and cussed in public and wore pants instead of skirts, like, she seemed like, fuck yeah, get it, but she just was not a good person. Life life was hard then and you know, she had to take care of a man whose mental and physical health was deteriorating. She was essentially like a single parent and then a caretaker for her mm. husband. And on top of that it was the depression and the dust bowl. And so she, that's a lot of yeah, a lot of pressure. <laughs> that's <laughs> a, a great time. Pressure. Yeah. <laughs> and even with the factory job that she was able to get, she was unhappy with that kind of job. Like she she wanted much more for herself than what she had. That same year, Jimmy started school is when Lynetta had to start her job. Jim Sr. was not at all able to work. They they called him Old Jim, actually, because he was only, like, in his 40s, I think. And he looked like he was, like, in his 60s or his 80s. This guy looked oh. and just lived old. Pinnacle and he spent weapons? his days... will do the... that to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he just spent his days at the pool hall. And I think at this time, like... They were in a dry county so he wasn't even drinking like he was just at the pool hall away from his family probably reliving some trauma that he should have sure been able to talk through but so you know Lynetta was like your your dad won't be home i won't be home and i don't want you home when we're not home and it's not like they had i mean maybe they did have daycare back then but Lynetta didn't put jamie in daycare she was just like you're not in the house until i get home so so this is like worse than latchkey kids
0: like because at least latchkey kids could go home Mm -hmm. when their working parent wasn't there right but
1: he was forbade from being in the home right and he's like six and so yeah that's rough yeah (laughs) and like they lived in kind of a small town but like i don't know it's like he just had to kind of wander the streets of this small town like trying to figure out what to do until his mom got home and like everyone knew that this was the case everyone could see jimmy just wandering around doing whatever kicking dirt clods you know and (laughs) one woman she took pity on him she saw him wandering around asked if he was hungry and he always was because he was six and not allowed to be at home and so she would give him pie and read the bible to him I know that some people might take issue with what I'm going to say. I mean, most most listeners probably have a vibe for me right now. But some people might take issue with the fact that I think that because this woman Myrtle Kennedy knew that Jones didn't go to church on Sundays, she knew that he had no kind of religious influence in his life. She knew that she was kind of only the only positive influence in his life cuz he's sick and He's not allowed to go home and now he's kind of captive because she's giving him food and treating him nicely. Mm-hmm. I think that all of these things combined are predatory
0: bullshit. I mean, I I would tend to agree with you because you're she's holding him captive by saying like yeah. You want food? Okay, right. then listen to the Bible.
1: And like, she's creating this like deep dichotomy between his parents who have taught him no religion and starting to enforce these like, I don't know, like the ability to have religion in your mind and to be like, oh, like introduction to morals being shown to me by like the only person who's being nice to me,
0: like right. It's it's so he's gonna he's gonna equate that with kindness and right. with the general good, right? And I know.
1: Yeah, I know that people will be like, well, to be Christian is to be good, blah, blah, whatever, sure. But you can like, be good without being Christian. Exactly. And also you can be good without taking a kid who's just starting to develop critical thinking skills and telling him this is the way to think. Like not right. being like, here's what some people think. Here's like an introduction to morality on the whole, but like Jesus is real, God is real, and like here's how we got to that. I just, it's mm-hmm. it's fucking gross to me. What I think is interesting about Jones is that part of his interest in Christianity could have actually stemmed from the things his mother told him whenever she would explain their lot in life and how the world worked. She would tell him about how the rich exploited the poor and would never allow the have-nots to have a real chance at success. And so it's possible that in the parables that... Myrtle was telling him about Jesus and whatever. Jones saw some of what he was being told by his mother. Maybe not these, like, tenets of Christianity, but just like, oh, yeah, I I have also seen or I've heard these things reflected in the world view of my parents. I think that those things were maybe a little bit synergistic, but Mm. I don't know. I don't know. It's just... The whole the whole situation, I think, is gross. But Lynetta knew that Myrtle was doing this. She knew that Jimmy was spending his time with Myrtle Kennedy. And eventually these sessions of just, like, eating pie and reading the Bible to the point where he actually was able to recite entire passages back to Myrtle, like... Oh, His memory... so this is
0: indoctrination.
1: Yes, yes. His memory was very good, but it was also indoctrination. But these these sessions turned into Myrtle physically taking him to church. And then it turned into oh. Jimmy spending entire evenings with the Kennedys. So he's kind this of living is, like... I'm, she's grooming
0: him. Like, they didn't yes. have the word. They didn't have the word back then, I don't think. But no. she is grooming the sh- shit out of this little boy. Like, right. she saw she saw him as prey and like I think that you saying that it was super fucking predatory mm-hmm. is on the nose okay okay yeah
1: I mean I figured you'd agree with me but I was like man mm, mm-mm, no <laughs> no she,
0: I mean I mean it no when you're starting to take him to church yeah and you're spending all this time like you're a grown-ass woman Mhm. Mm-hmm. what are you doing with this little boy
1: right right and Again, people could argue like oh she's just trying to do this that and whatever to like help him, but it's like you could have left it at pie. Like you honestly You could have left it at pie,
0: pie and <laughs> giving him a and giving him a place to hang out while his parents are working, mm-hmm. but taking him to yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. anyhow. Anyhow. But- Lynetta didn't take offense to any of this she actually was not bothered by him being taken to church or by him spending his evening with the myrtles because she thought religion was just fucking stupid and only stupid people needed it in their lives and mm. they needed it because they weren't going to amount to anything so they kind of needed something to keep them going and she didn't think that jimmy was susceptible to that kind of thing because despite Lynetta not caring very much for him as a person or you know caring about his well-being as a kid she knew that he wasn't going to have this sad bleak meaningless life that like religion would have to like pack the holes of you know she mm. before his birth she knew this because she'd had this like f- i think fever induced vision i'm not really sure she had some sort of vision or dream where she was dying and crossing the river of death in egypt But then her mom appeared and told her that she was going to give birth to a child who would become a great man. Oh. (laughs) So she was like, he'll be fine. Not my
0: my Jimmy. Not Not my Jimmy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. But either way, Jimmy loved going to church. It went from he had an obsession with planes to an obsession with church. And... He honestly, like, he could not wait for Sundays to go with Myrtle and to hear the Bible passages already, like, read to him that he already knew by heart. But there was also something about this relationship, this, like, living half a life with Myrtle. He started to call her mom when it was just the two of them. Oh, no. Yeah, so he loved going to church with mom,
0: but he didn't. And that was probably much, much to Myrtle's, like,
1: oh, I'm pleasure, sure. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. But what was not to her pleasure, I'm sure, is that she, you know, took him to Nazarene Church and he really liked it. And he liked hanging out with mom on Sundays, but that blossomed. And he was like, well, what other churches are there? And I think that that's a really natural thing. Like, I think that that's the thing that should have been taught to him early on. Like, any at any point that somebody was like, here's religion and here's, like, how you can interpret the world, like – here are the different things that people believe. This, I think, is very normal. He started going to revivalist churches on Sundays. He went to Methodist churches, Quaker churches, basically every church in town. He was like, "I want to see what is up at these other churches," and for years he did this. And people knew. People knew okay. that there was this weird Jones kid that didn't have religion <laughs> at home, and his parents were really kind of fucked up. And he went and to he's the just other like into the sampling. Yeah, and like it was, it's kind of a faux pas to like not choose and stick with a church Right? they're like, eh, he'll he'll settle He's down. just a weird kid. We'll let him we'll
0: let him slide. Yeah,
1: yeah. But he even went so far as to like get baptized by the churches that required it for membership. So he was like multiply baptized. Okay. Like, I don't know. It's just weird. But yeah, they were like, he'll he'll figure it out. And like even Myrtle wasn't upset with him for like, you know, straying from where she wanted to go and she True. remained Part of his life, they, you know, remained in contact with each other for decades to the point where later when he was in Guyana, he would send her letters to let her know how the People's Temple was doing in Jonestown.
0: Oh, wow. They she played a big part in his life.
1: A huge part in his life. Yeah.
0: And and how old was he when he was going around and checking out all of these different churches? I would say he was probably like eight or nine when he was doing this. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, old and like old enough to know what he's
1: doing, not just like randomly. Right. Yeah. Old enough yeah. to like be make asking the questions. Right. And being mm-hmm. like, huh. And again, I think that's pretty normal. And so, I don't know, I'm not entirely sure what to make of Jimmy Jones and his exploration of religion. Like as much as I think that it is normal in one way, some people seem to chalk up his inability to choose like an indication of manipulative behavior early on, like he was trying to figure out how he could manipulate people and manipulate his relationship with his parents or, I don't know. But there's also the fact that like later on, in like 1977, he was doing an interview for what was supposed to become a memoir. And he said that he never believed in God. And he just saw religion as a way to turn people onto socialism. But to me, at you know six seven eight nine it seems a little too complex and high-minded for a child to like have that train of thought the manipulation i would or agree pro-socialism I mean,
0: the pro-socialism part for sure i mean i could maybe see when he got a little bit older like eight or nine seeing like oh these people can be manipulated mm-hmm. Like I could maybe see that, but that's
1: still kind of a stretch. Like right. And I could maybe see him even being like going to all these churches and maybe you know listening to Lynetta at home and seeing the holes that he you know found in their right. Especially because of especially because of Lynetta yes. saying churches for stupid people.
0: Like right. I could see that part like getting it from both sides, mm-hmm. playing into it, and saying like. When he's going to these churches being like wow these people are getting manipulated
1: like, or or just being like i don't believe these stories anymore but the way they're presented is fascinating like the spectacle of some of these churches right especially the revivalist churches i think that he really just liked the spectacle of it like regardless of whether or not he believed in or didn't i think that there was something else that hooked him
0: yeah for sure but i don't think that it was
1: like his pro-socialist beliefs at nine years old no i don't think that I, i don't i think that if he was questioning like if there was a god or if he was questioning social injustice you know that was like, still still being reflected, but he was like, I don't know about this higher power. Like, that's still an indication that he was thinking for himself, you know, unless mm-hmm. it truly was Lynetta, like, putting it on him. But I think that he was capable of thinking for himself pretty early on is what I get the impression of. And that's fine. Like, it's totally fine to think for yourself and to come to your own beliefs unless you're going to be a fucking asshole about it. And I think right. that's that was his prerogative the, early the problem. On, is that he yeah. was just a little asshole. <laughs> And part of the reason I think this is because when Jimmy was 10, the United States entered into World War II. And instead of going with what the other kids were doing in town, you know, the cops and robbers games turned into like army guys or Marines versus the German army. And instead of like following what he was hearing at these churches too, where it was like, be nice to everybody and the Germans are bad, was probably what he was hearing he decided that he didn't just want to play maybe the germans to have you know the bad guy he wanted to be hitler in the games oh yeah
0: okay so that's huge Mm -hmm. giant red
1: flag yeah he he was obsessed with hitler and again i think it's Probably because of the spectacle, the, the like, spectacle, yeah, the newsreels he saw of Hitler commanding a stage and his armies and his oratory, and he would bully the other kids into playing Nazis if you know they decided to play games with him, and when they didn't do exactly what he wanted and like march exactly as he told them to, he would hit them with a switch. All right, and like that's a choice. I also want to say that I don't think he was aware of the ideology of the Nazis because he's ten. And I honestly don't know what kids in the nineteen forties were taught in terms of like what was going on over there. But I don't think that he necessarily knew about the ideology of the Nazis or the political status of the United States. Like we were just told that they were bad and they were doing bad things. And so what I think what was happening is that he was just being a fucking edgelord. Like Jim Jones was an edgelord and this is where it starts. And he just liked the way that he commanded control because jones wanted to be able to control people like that he looked at that and was like i know some kids who i can get to do that like especially the younger kids
0: well and especially when he's seeing the spectacle like you were saying the spectacles of the church Mm -hmm. he's seeing like oh my gosh like they're controlling a church of like i don't know 50 100 people this yeah. guy's controlling millions of people i want that like, i want that, he yes. saw a new he saw a new level yes. of manipulation and control mm-hmm. and he's like he saw like what a possibility yeah like the world of possibility <laughs> is endless like it's probably i mean that's yeah uh,
1: yeah i so would agree i would agree and like you know there were some like other kind of weird borderline normal kid stuff that happened that probably also should have been looked at and nipped in the bud like jimmy liked to tell all the kids explicit details that he knew about sex mm. and he, you know like it's not that the other kids didn't know like they lived in a farming community like they had seen so they knew about yeah they'd
0: yeah they know yeah. about sex they
1: know about sex
0: to a certain degree
1: right right they and... know about
0: procreation
1: They know about procreation, and they also know it's not something you're supposed to talk about. Like, you you might Mm. be able to hear it through mom and dad's walls and, like, the thin walls of the house you live in, but we don't talk about it. And that's mom and dad's stuff, and we don't talk about it. And he actually got in trouble by his aunts, who also lived in the town he grew up in. But when they were like, hey, Lynetta, you need to address this. Jimmy's going around just talking about sex. Lynetta didn't do anything. Now... Something that Jim Jones eventually became well known for were his sermons on racial equality, of which he appeared to be a staunch believer. And this began in his hometown of Lynn, Indiana, when he was still in high school. And Jimmy noticed that in the nearby big city of Richmond, blacks were treated much worse than whites, worse than they were in his small town. Because, I mean, I think segregation was it was the law of the land, obviously, Mm -hmm. but it was worse in big towns you know it mm-hmm. was worse in places that could afford to have two entrances in enforcement like that. right yeah. right but so he decided he was going to do something about it this big city needed to be segregated and 15 16 year old Jimmy Jones he was going to do it and so he would get dressed on Sundays, instead of going to church, he would take the bus 17 miles to Richmond, and then he would start holding sermons near the railroad tracks in the poorest parts of Richmond about how everyone was equal in God's eyes. And I've thought about this a lot, and it's likely that he did believe this, because there's this theme that he carried with him through his sermons for the rest of his life, and that was that people are equal regardless of race. and. The People's Temple ended up being notably diverse. Like, I think by the time they got to Guyana, I think it was like seventy-five percent black congregants. Okay. So, was- and on paper, this
0: sounds good. Like what he's totally, preaching on paper totally. sounds good. Yeah. Like not and- not the part of <laughs> of the white point traveling to go preaching <laughs> so in the poor parts of town. Not yeah. that part.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, and that's what makes it so difficult. Is like people are complex. Good people are complex. Bad people are complex. Maybe he actually did believe this. I don't know. But what I really believe, after having read as much as I have, is that he was an edgelord in this sense, too. and In that, like, kind of eighth grade sense of, like, I'm not racist. I hate everyone equally. Like, I think that Mm. was Jim Jones. I'm not racist. I want to control
0: everybody equally. Right. Everybody has an equal chance at my control
1: yes yeah exactly and again nobody thought that this was like fucking weird because they were like "Ah, that's just jimmy jones and he wants to be a preacher so Mm. like yeah that's what he's gonna do and nobody's gonna think it's like weird and condescending because it's the fucking 50s or whatever it is at this point right in 1948 Lynetta's boyfriend whom she'd had for several years because jim senior was totally checked out the boyfriend moved away And she decided that if she couldn't have fun anymore, then it wasn't even worth trying. And so she decided to move to Richmond, which is where she worked. And only Jimmy was going to come with her, not Jim Senior. Oh, so he enrolled for his senior year at a new school in a bigger city and was immediately introduced to his first taste of communism. And not the like Hmm. governmental ideology or anything, but the actual idea of like living and working communally. Yeah, gotcha. Gotcha. So the Christian Youth Fellowship at his new school believed that the most righteous way to live life was through Christian communism. Quote, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. That kind of thing. Okay. And this was during the Cold War. And so it wasn't like a widely accepted belief among Americans, but it's easy to see how kids who spent all their free time reading the Bible and like are maybe even kind of attuned to the Cold War in a sense and like to just how fucked up things are in the world, it's easy to see how they could come to this conclusion. Sure. Jim not only attended high school full-time, but also had a full-time job as an orderly at Reed Hospital. And this is where he met future wife, Marceline Baldwin, who was a senior nursing student at the hospital in late 1948. Marceline and her family were also very religious, and Jim's whole traditional and pious song and dance was enough for everyone to overlook the three-and-a-half-year age difference between the two. Marceline was three-and-a-half years older. Being older. Mm -hmm. On June 12, 1949, the two were married in a double wedding with Marceline's 20-year-old sister Eloise and her partner Dale Klingman. They couldn't live together just yet, Marceline and Jim, and Marceline was still living with her parents. But she wouldn't be for long because of jim during a family dinner marceline's mother charlotte said some pretty shitty things about interracial marriage and jim got super pissed off and said to marceline of charlotte quote you're going to have to choose between me and that bitch oh shit
0: now was marceline black
1: no marceline was white okay
0: they, they the interracial
1: marriage just got brought up yeah as a part of got it okay yeah. marcy of course chose Jim she chose her husband and they lived with Lynetta for a while before they got their own apartment and then when it was just the two of them they had some pretty intense fights about religion where Jim basically told Marcy she believed in the wrong version of the Christian God and that her beliefs were wrong
0: oh yeah. well maybe if they had uh dated a little longer they could have figured this out before they got married
1: I mean there's that but I also wonder if he was doing the thing that he would do later, where he like kind of hooked people in with the mm. religious, you know, and then. And then he was like antagonistic about what they believed in. Or he was just like, he would just kind of show his true colors and be like, I don't mm. actually believe in God. And so, again, I don't know if at this point he didn't believe in God and told her that he just, he didn't believe in God and she believed in God and she was stupid, or if she believed in the wrong version of God. I don't know. Got it. Either way, that's not what Marceline signed up for. It's not what she had you know, seen of him in their courtship. Mm-hmm. She had thought they were on the same page. But Jim was not at all willing, despite the fact that he probably did manipulate her into thinking like they were totally cool, he was not at all willing to give her room to sp- express her own beliefs on the matter. He was like, you're wrong and I'm right. And if mm-hmm. they fought about something that Marcy thought Jim was wrong about, like certain tenets of socialism, he would give no compromise and would threaten their marriage over it so it always had to be that jim was right and marcy always had to give in to his whims and to say okay you're right and you know early on she was like he's showing his true colors and i don't like it but there was a social stigma against divorce and women had to just kind of bend to the wills of their husbands in every marriage that she saw and be patient and all of that so she stayed and she tried to tough it out even though early on she was like oh this is not what i want
0: so and it had it come out at this point that he
1: didn't believe in god i don't know again i don't know i'm not sure when okay. he started to be clear with that okay. it, it could have been that he started to say that i don't believe in god or it could have just been we believe in the wrong god you the you're wrong, wrong god yeah so the first of many children that jim would eventually adopt in some capacity was marceline's 10 year old cousin ronnie in 1951 He'd been living separated from his brothers since his father died when he was four and his mother was unable to care for him. And after a ruptured appendix nearly killed him in the care of a foster home, if not for the intervention of Jim and Marslin, they decided to be his full-time caretakers. Unsurprisingly, life as Jim Jones' first adopted child was not necessarily better for Ronnie, who Jim would give long, graphic lectures on sex, and who Ronnie <sighs> later said had two faces, one for the public and one at home. Well, he had a good eye on that. So mm-hmm. And I mean, he, he called that but... Yeah, he was seeing what Marceline was saying, the public right. face and the home face. And right. that is such a it's such a red flag. I mean, that is so like how we describe perpetrators of domestic violence like mm-hmm. that is it. Definitely. Yeah. But it's also unsurprising to me that none of his behavior as a kid had ever been checked. And so of course he's going to be the same problematic adult that he'd been as he's... a kid. Right. He has no reason to change his
0: behavior. Mm-hmm. Nobody has checked him, so why why would he have stopped? He's Nobody ever said, there's something wrong with what you're doing. In fact, right. he was almost encouraged.
1: Right, right. And, I mean, to say adult is almost, like, not right, because he, he was technically adult, but he's only, like, 19 or 20. Like, he's still right. basically a kid, now raising a kid, and still trying to figure shit out. Right. And, you know, he was attending school to go in some vague direction of ministry, but he was also fumbling along. He was he was at this point like, well, I don't know if I want to be a lawyer or a minister. Like he's still figuring out like everybody else, like he has no idea what he's doing with his life. And for all his fervent beliefs, beliefs in socialism and communism and a certain type of God that apparently one could conceive. He also had yet to decide on what denomination of Christianity or church to become permanently aligned with. And that was a little bit of an issue if you wanted to be a preacher when he graduated. Like you kinda have to know. Can't Which
0: which kind of preacher would you like to be? Yeah, you can't All of the above.
1: (laughs) There's no church crawling allowed as an adult. That's a very childhood privilege.
0: Right. Yeah, that's usually something that you figure out. Yeah.
1: But Now, Marceline was a Methodist, and despite the vitriol between them over her believing in the wrong God as a Methodist, she was still sometimes able to drag him to a Methodist service. And Jim was completely unimpressed by the Methodists and thought they were full of shit for saying that there was a paradise awaiting believers in the afterlife and not doing something in this life and, like, just relying on the paradise in the afterlife to, like, kind of get people through. Like, he was very much like... You know, people are alive right now and in need, which, yeah, totally, they are. I agree with that. But the teachings of the Methodists shifted around 1952 towards an emphasis on the alleviation of property, free speech, prison reform, full employment, and racial integration. And so Jim Jones was like, oh, yeah, okay, I can get down with Methodism now. And so he told... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he told his family he was going to be a Methodist minister and Marceline Marceline and the Baldwins were just thrilled about that. They were like, "Oh, yeah, okay. Well, we're finally we're finally playing for the same team." Exactly. Exactly. Okay. He hadn't settled on a church yet though. And so, he began to search a little bit more fervently for a black church that he felt a connection through methodism where he could be brought on as a student pastor. Instead, in the summer of 1952, the Somerset Methodist Church, which served mostly low-income white families, brought him on. And at this point, he was 21 years old, so he's actually become a minister for the first time. By the spring of the following year, Jones was still preaching at the church, but had already begun separating himself from Methodism, which was clear in his sermons that were not adherent to specific tenets and like, mostly just mm. discussed lessons from the Bible at large. And the primary leaders at the church, the preachers, and the congregants actually did not like this approach. They were like, we're from Methodists.
0: <laughs> right. <and> you're not. <laughs> you're you're not reading from the same book as us.
1: Like... Yeah. Or like you're reading from the same book, but you're interpreting it in a way we don't like.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 Like... This is this is not what we signed up for.
1: Yeah, and it was also, like, a bit much for him to be rocking the boat like this because he's basically just, like, an intern, an assistant, and they're like, what do you think you're doing? You're a little big for your britches. <laughs> right. And then Jones was also feeling instability at home because Ronnie's mother was doing better, and Ronnie had decided to start living with her again and his brothers. I and, wonder why. <laughs> right. And... At the same time, like so Ronnie has like this idea and Jim and Marceline are like getting ready to legally adopt him. And so Jim was like very upset and felt literally betrayed by this kid for him being like, no, I want to go live with my mom. And the whole ordeal came to a head after Ronnie physically had to run away from Jim. And Jim chased him through Ronnie's grandparents' neighborhood and then cornered Ronnie in his own home until Ronnie's older brother, Dean, essentially told Jim to fuck off and leave Ronnie alone. And then (sighs) Jones completely abandoned Ronnie. He never mentioned him again. And soon after that, they adopted an 11-year-old girl named Agnes that Jones met through the church. So he just completely shifted his attentions for Ronnie onto this Agnes girl and was like, Ronnie, never heard of him don't know who that is.
0: <laughs> so, were was Jones infertile and unable to have his own kids or was his like savior complex at work through like adopting other kids?
1: We'll get into what could have been like the savior complex later, but Jones was definitely not infertile. These were just, like, circumstances that presented themselves. Yeah, I mean, there was the opportunity to, like, take in a needy kid that definitely presented itself. But the reason that Marceline and Jim hadn't had any kids yet is because Marceline had, like, these really bad back troubles, I think. And so it actually made sex really painful for her. Gotcha. I don't know. I guess it's important. Maybe I should have mentioned it. I just felt bad for her. But, like, her... And Jim not having a very active sex life is actually going to be a huge part of the story later Mm. as well. Okay. Yeah. So while he was still struggling to find his footing as a preacher, Jones was still checking out different churches and his fascination with black revivalist churches remained intact. Now that he had already had a couple of sermons under his belt, he gave it a shot during services in tents in Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, and Michigan. He was going all over to like throw spaghetti at the wall and see what stuck. In particular, he was interested in the healers at these services who claim to drive out demons and cure cancer with their divine church. Like the revivalist tent sermons that you've seen like footage of or that you've like Right about, these are exactly what he was attending, like full spectacle, okay. speaking in tongues, healing touch, all of that. That was where he was like, yeah, give me more of that. This
0: is my, this is my jam.
1: Yeah. And he actually tried out the healing, but it didn't go super well at first, which makes sense. Cause if like, you I don't... wonder why, I, I... <laughs> aside from the pseudoscience of it all, like it, it makes sense that it didn't quote unquote work because he didn't have a personality where people are like, Oh, I'm cured now. like. You you can't just have a rando guy be like, you are cured, you know, so. Right. (laughs) So what he did to try to, and it was very effective, actually. So what he did in order to insinuate himself into these churches and become that cult of personality was he would start to take notes on audience members. He would sit in the audience and he would overhear conversations. And his memory, you know, it had allowed him to memorize whole passages from the Bible as a kid. So his memory was very, very good. And he was able to without writing anything down and being too conspicuous, remember the names of congregants and their complaints. And he was able to use this information to call out people during his sermon, and to speak to their problems, seemingly inexplicably, unless they believed that God was truly watching them. And through Jim Jones, their Mm. suffering was being seen. No one else knew that he was doing this, including Marceline. Marceline had no idea that this is what he was doing. So she was impressed by it, too. It seemed like a fucking miracle. Like, it seemed very legitimate. Eventually, Jim Jones would be able to pay performers who could come into meetings with wheelchairs and pretend that Jones had given them the ability to walk again. Like, there's one Mm. very famous piece of footage from... When they're in San Francisco, and there's this woman who's in a wheelchair, and he's talking to her and tells her to stand up out of her wheelchair, and so she stands up and takes some shaky steps, and then soon she's running a- around and dancing, and it's a fucking miracle. She was a secretary. She was one of Jones's secretaries. Oh. But people didn't know that. And he would also eventually like, get people to believe that he had cured their cancer, or not get people to believe he'd cured their cancer, but he would plant two people in the audience, one who supposedly had cancer and one who was an assistant, and he would tell them to go into the bathroom and to come back, and they would come back with these like decomposing chicken guts, Oh God! and so they would smell, and they'd be bloody, and he would say, look, you've passed the cancer, and they'd be able to like show this cancer had been passed. So that's the kind of shit he would eventually get up to, but at this point... He was basically just duping people who had bought into his personality Mm -hmm. into psychosomatically believing that their chronic pain had been cured or that their cancer was eliminated with his touch. It was incremental. Like people didn't buy into a whole cloth. Like it was a very incremental thing. And his sermons would also eventually take on a more personalized feel through years of trial and error, through years of sitting in the audience and listening to people and seeing how he could address people and how he could get them to believe. Like, how would you know that? Even when the author of the memoir that I read, Deborah Layton, described first meeting Jim Jones in 1970. She described this apparent omniscience that Jones had, where she believed that Jones could read her thoughts as she sat through one of his sermons. Oh, God, that's frightening. (laughs) And he goes on to say directly to her that she doesn't need to explain anything because he can hear her thoughts. Oh, my God. All right. So in reality, of course, Jim probably learned who this woman was because her brother, who was actually very close to Jones, gave him all of this information before she showed up. And like, he probably knew she was gonna be sitting in on the sermon and he was probably watching her specifically. I mean, he he probably spoke like this very generally in order to hook people mm-hmm. in and give it a personalized feel. But he probably- Like the cold readers that are psychics, where they- Yeah. Like same kind of tactics. Right. But he probably wanted to rein in another member of her family. He already had Larry. And he already had Larry's wife, Carolyn. And so there were just a lot of whole families that were a part of the People's Temple. So this is probably an attempt to be like, you know, you're already in an inch by coming here because your brother is here. So let me see if I can bring you in another. Yeah. I I was only able to read so many source materials. So the two main books that I read were The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple by Jeff Gwynn. Great book, very detailed. But the other one that I read was Seductive Poison by Deborah Layton. And so I got to learn a lot about Deborah specifically, and she would eventually come to be one of Jones's like inner circle aides. And so while the testimony of the other People's Temple members who are included in documentaries and included in The Road to Jonestown are important, I'm going to have a lot from Debbie Layton just because I read her memoir, and I thought that it would be very telling to see, like, what the inner workings were like as somebody who... it's a first-hand account, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, a little bit about Debbie and her brother Larry. They were second-generation kids with German ancestry who were raised as Quakers. Larry's wife, Carolyn, became a school teacher when the couple graduated from college in 1968, and she decided to teach in a town that she'd found because of Jim Jones's sermons against the Vietnam War and for social equality. Jones became acquainted with the two personally and actually helped Larry write his conscientious objector letter to avoid being drafted into the war. And Larry actually earned this status in 1969. So in a way, he owed his life to Jones. You know, he didn't he wasn't sent to war. But within months of earning this status, Larry felt Carolyn pull away from him until the two had a meeting with Jim Jones in which Carolyn admitted that she had. You know been drifting away and asked for a divorce and then jones introduced larry to another congregate named karen and within six months the two were married and carolyn had earned a heightened status as jones's aide so there was definitely mm. some personal reasons for that sure but that's ahead of where we are in 1954 Jones was fired from his role at the Somerset Church and decided to try for the first time to found his own church in Indianapolis called Community Unity. Not only did Jones want everyone to feel equally welcome, but he especially wanted black believers to feel welcome. And he actually targeted inner city black people who were living in poverty and being preached to by ministers who promised that all the suffering in this life would eventually end and they'd be given a peaceful and fair afterlife which Jones had always thought was bullshit, why not help people right. now? he didn't even believe in it. And so what Jones was able to do for these people who, again, Jones is the one being predatory, being a white guy with power mm-hmm. and coming to these black neighborhoods, but he gave them a promise that he would do something to change things now, and honestly, he did. I'll talk about it more, but he actually did do things to change. Like, All right. Part of the tragedy of the story is that like, if it had stopped at a certain point and he wasn't such a megalomaniac, he would probably be like, Regarded as Freveered, like weird, yeah. You know this great civil rights, yeah, champion,
0: yeah. maybe, yeah, maybe. So, do we know why he was fired from
1: Somerset exactly? There's two sides to every story, right? Yep. The Joneses would say that Jim lost his job because of his attempts to desegregate the congregation there. When mm. Somerset was asked a good 25 years later during the ensuing FBI investigation they claimed that jones had been asked to leave the church after he'd been accused of lying and stealing church funds oh both accounts are probably unlikely jones's account is unlikely because there weren't that many black people nearby to attempt to bring into the congregation i mean as i said before it was mostly yeah it was mostly low-income white people there wasn't a whole lot of black people to even attempt to desegregate and then somerset I mean they're answering questions retrospectively after the massacre so they have a reason to, you know, throw more dirt onto Jones's name. But what they said is probably untrue because Jones was basically an intern. He didn't have access to money. There was no real way he could steal mm. money. So, right. So who knows? Who knows what it was? Maybe so it was probably in- am- hmm?
0: maybe it's just cuz he he went against their way of yeah, their way their way of life a little bit too much. And yeah, like, I mean, yeah,
1: you are you're ruffling too many feathers. That was probably. I mean, it may have even been an amicable separation. They might have been like, "You don't seem Methodist," and he might have been like, "Ah, not really." And they were like, "You know what? Let's not. Anymore. <laughs> let's let's just call let's just call it quits here." Yeah, and he's yeah. like,
0: "Okay, I'm gonna go do my own thing anyhow."
1: Right, right. So, like I said, he genuinely was doing good things when he first started community unity. And it seemed like maybe he did genuinely believe in socialism. Again, people are complicated. And I don't think that every action that he ever had was like out of malice or evil or a want to control. Like he probably did have some good things about him. And I I certainly don't think that early on he was scheming to get thousands of people to follow him or he wanted to lead his followers into their deaths like even his son Stephen Jones who was in basically all the documentaries I watched was quoted in the road to Jonestown and online there is a a website that's hosted by the San Diego State University called Alternative Consideration of Jonestown and People's Temple. And Stephen Jones contributes to that website very regularly, a lot of the survivors do. So I was able to get a lot of firsthand accounts from Stephen Jones, who was Jones's only biological son. Well, we'll get into that. But basically his only biological son. And he said himself that he didn't think his dad thought that far ahead and was really only focused on current circumstances which is like mm. very human it's a very human thing to do especially it's very, when, yeah yeah especially when you have like really high-minded aspirations like some people don't think like step 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 it's that meme you know where you try to like make six steps and like right not do the difficult <laughs> thing first right <laughs> so I don't know maybe maybe he did re- really did see the virtues of socialism and fully believed in them and I think It could be possible, too, that he didn't think of himself as being racist. Even his son, Stephen, he said that his dad was racist. So, like, the Joneses ended up, and we'll talk about it as, you know, the timeline gets there, but they ended up with a rainbow family. They were kind of one of the first, like, famous rainbow families. And Mm -hmm. his son, Stephen, called him racist. But then his other son, Jim Jr., who was the first black child adopted by a white family in indiana he said Hello. that his father always referred to him as his adopted black son not his son so not just my adopted son or my or, son right my adopted black son and so there's always this like feeling of like being an outsider right so i don't know jones was complicated probably not all bad not great he was an edgelord that's yeah, that's the best way I could put it. He was a fucking edge lord, but he did do good things. So, one of his first Sunday gatherings at he it was a storefront, like he just bought a little rented space, rented a little space. He had a few of the people who had heard of him through Somerset or through his traveling tent sermons, and one of his black members was saying that their electric company had been giving them problems, and they they needed somebody to come in and service their wherever they were living, and they wouldn't do it, and they were threatened that they'd have their power just completely turned off if they pressed. Mm. And so Jones and all the other members who were present helped pen a letter to the electric company. And he insisted in this letter that the woman needed to get the services she'd been paying for and the repairs she needed and all of this. And the next Sunday, the woman came back to church and said, the letter worked. Somebody finally came out and made repairs and they didn't shut her electricity off. Yeah. Nice. And there was a lot of there was a lot of different things like this where people would have problems and the whole congregation would help write a letter and then Jones would sign it and well, shit would get fixed. Har-
0: yeah, this seems heartwarming and adorable. Like, right. And so this is what I'm saying. Like like, like gets- the way like churches like rally together and help out a member like right. cool like awesome. if it stopped at
1: this point it would all be fine it would be great right. like maybe he would still be racist in that way that like everybody in the 1950s was racist or maybe sure. a little bit more than that but like still like hey like tangibly
0: he's helping he's, helping, he's tangibly helping people out it, and exactly. making their
1: lives better exactly yeah. but in well, doing this is good so. <laughs> oh oh there's no, always a but there's a but there's, there's a, but. a but <laughs> there's a but there's a but in doing so, Jones worked himself and Marceline into the fucking ground because it took mm. a lot to have this church and to, I mean, this church isn't making him any money. So he also has to, right. you know, have another job. Figure and Figure out how to pay the bills. Yeah. Right. And she resisted at the beginning, you know, at the beginning to being worked to the bone. And she thought that Jones's militance and intensity about religion would honestly drive people away. She was like, you know, you are doing good things, but the way that you're preaching, I don't think people are going to like that. I think that you need to change the way that you're doing things. But his numbers only grew, and it's probably because Hmm. he was actually doing good things. But as I mentioned, you know, she had to work, he had to work. They also had a kid at home. But what he did, (laughs) because it was the 1950s, and the 1950s was a weird time, he sold spider monkeys door to door.
0: That's a little that's a little different than selling knives or magazine
1: subscriptions. No. That's a next level choice. Yeah. yeah. Fucking spider monkeys. And um, all right, he, um, there was actually a woman who he sold a spider monkey to. She had already had a monkey somehow. And oh. it, <laughs> it hanged itself somehow. Oh my god. And so she bought a spider monkey from Jones, and then he just fucking as an entrepreneur was like, hey, you should come to my church. And she would end up being with him until Guyana, the spider-monkey lady. Yeah. this Spider-monkey
0: is the united friendships (laughs) for years to come.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And also while he was doing this, he was, you know, continuing to preach outside of community unity and do the faith healing and whatever. He was just 100%, 100% of the time. Like I said, he was working both of them to the fucking bone. And, you know, as his notoriety grew, he was able to cure more people with his healing powers and more people believed him. And this is when the chicken guts came out. And there was okay. another family that believed that Jones cured their son Danny's serious heart defect because the boy's diagnosis actually did change. So he, oh. Danny got this diagnosis of, like, heart failure or whatever. And then they went to church. They went to one of the tents, and Jones placed hands. And then they went back and got another diagnosis, and the heart condition was gone. You know, whatever the EKG or oh. however they had diagnosed it, it was normal. But it was probably just a misdiagnosis in the first place, Spindle. right?
0: Right, that's that's more likely.
1: Yeah, but the family was like, Jim Jones cured our son. Save.
0: And then that's a pretty good testament, especially if he wasn't one of the plants. You exactly. know what I mean? Like, exactly. he's an organic, mm-hmm. yeah, an organic mm-hmm. tale of, like, his
1: magical healing powers. Yeah. So the more people who came to see Jones and stayed, the more money community unity brought in and the more space was required to hold sermons. In -hmm. Indianapolis, the white flight of the 1950s left many abandoned buildings, including religious centers. And so Jones was able to buy a new location for only $50,000. It was an old Jewish property, and so the word temple was carved in stone. And thus, Jones's organization earned its new name the People's Temple. Mm, That's how it came
0: about. Mm -hmm. It just, just because there was a word already there.
1: Yep. While Jones built the People's Temple from the inside, Marcelin helped to build it from the outside by attending local city hall and school administration meetings. This way, the People's Temple was always informed, possibly the best informed organization in the city about what was going on in the you know, local community. Mm-hmm. And really in these early days, the People's Temple was doing a lot of work and Jones were putting in the effort to make a difference in people's lives. So like, the word got out about the People's Temple pretty early after they became the People's Temple and weren't community unity anymore. And Marceline and Jim actually got their house up to state certification standards to make it a nursing home for elderly congregants. Oh, okay, yeah, so like, that's a big step. Right. And they were putting in the effort. And so it's like hard to say that Jones didn't fully believe in it when he's like offering up his home to the cause. Right. You know? Right. And then they eventually expanded. So they owned several nursing homes in the area. And they also opened a soup kitchen. They were very involved actively in the trying
0: to, yeah, actively yeah.
1: trying to better the community. Right. And Jones is actually. He was directly involved and had a direct influence over the desegregation of Indianapolis.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. So Marceline, though, she went from arguing about the beliefs with him, like, arguing about her Methodist beliefs with him to being this huge proponent of his work and actively trying to help him build up his new
1: following. I mean, like, so she she didn't like that they weren't on the same page about religion and that he wasn't actually a methodist but like it couldn't be argued that he wasn't doing a good thing and like whether or not he did it in the name of god or christianity the Methodist god yeah like marceline i think really is the first example of like people buying in and not buying in completely but like seeing enough to be like okay all right i'll help and like okay this is gonna be seen again and again with people that Jones attracts and the people that he attracts to his inner circle. So the church was expanding, but Marceline and Jim also wanted to expand their family because so far they just had Agnes. And Agnes was a very troublesome child that they actually just never really connected with deeply. And they also just wanted more children. Like Marceline wanted to have more children, but she was having a hard time conceiving. And so they decided to start their rainbow family that I talked about earlier. First, they adopted two Korean orphans, Stephanie and Lou. But four year old Stephanie was unfortunately hit by a car and they. Oh, shit. Yeah, and died in May of 1959. And shortly after her death, Marceline gave birth to a little boy named Stephen, spelled Stefan, as a way to memorialize dead Stephanie. Okay. In October of 1961, Jones began looking for a new location for the People's Temple that would eventually lead them to Guyana, although not right away. He told his congregants that he'd had a vision that America would soon be under nuclear attack and that everyone in Indianapolis would be killed.
0: This. Oh, Jesus. And it wasn't that
1: unlikely. Coming in hot. (laughs) But it wasn't that unlikely of a scenario to announce because it was the Cold War, right? So, like, kind Mm. of everybody is on edge about this. Right. And he. He went and physically visited a couple locations, searching for somewhere that he could tell his followers they would be protected from nuclear holocaust, but he was also looking for a location that was sympathetic, or at least apathetic, to the socialist agenda of the People's mm. Temple, and eventually decided that Brazil was the best option. Okay. He and his family actually lived there for two years, attempting to put down roots oh, wow. to, yeah, to relocate the People's Temple, but it just didn't work out. And when he returned to the U.S., Jim found that the church had changed in his absence. He had another pastor, I think maybe two even, who were supposed to continue to preach from his script, but he was gone. And so they were pushing they went things. went off script. Yeah, they were off script. They were probably still doing community outreach, but more of, like, religion rather than socialism. And, you know, he lost people as a result. His message had been diluted. He was fucking pissed about this whole thing. He actually was already kind of on the way to like having people believe that he was a savior himself or that he was God. I mean, mm. he already had this whole, like, I have healing I'm powers, yeah. yeah. And so he, he was very upset that people were being lost and not buying into it anymore. And he needed people to believe that he could save them from nuclear fallout or racial injustice. And so he still needed to relocate who remained. And another pastor, actually, named Father Divine had gained a very devout base by relocating his flock. And so he was trying to replicate that process. There was actually gotcha. a whole whole side story with Father Divine and Mother Divine, and it was fucking weird. And, like, I mean, almost famously, Last Podcast on the Left did a five-episode series on Jonestown. So if you're interested in that, you can read the road to Jonestown or listen to the series I didn't want to delve into it because this is already going to be a super fucking long episode right So, but you can look into that but he was still thinking like you know I can take these people and relocate them and to me it seems like a power move like less like Mm -hmm. out of a want to protect people and more like if you move with me you're proving your loyalty and you're also being isolated which
0: is a part of it is a part of his way of guaranteeing that they'll stay with him.
1: Yes. And I want to I wanna say the C word. It's the first step in establishing a cult. Right. And not a new religious movement, which is sometimes what cults are called. And we'll we'll talk about cults at the end of the episode once everything has been laid out for everybody. But really to me, that's what it seems like, is that whole I am taking you elsewhere and I'm your whole world and you're having to rebuild your life around me. That's to me what it seemed like. Either way, it was determined that they were gonna move the People's Temple, and this time he decided to move a little closer than Brazil, he decided to stay within the United States, and he chose Ukiah, California. A little town near the Redwood Valley, the Esquire magazine, named as one of nine places that would be safe locations in the event of a nuclear war. Like, nice. this is where he got the idea from, was Esquire magazine. He's like, oh, here we go.
0: Right. Nice little checklist. Where can we go? See, Esquire said that it was safe. So let's roll. Let's roll. Right.
1: Now, it should be mentioned here that very few people actually followed Jones when he made this move. His Mm. congregation had severely dwindled, as I said, when he went to Brazil. Before, he'd had hundreds of people who would come to his services weekly. And afterwards, he only had a couple dozen, which Mm. is why he was so upset. He was like, what did you do while I was gone? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Out of the remaining congregants, Only about 90 followed Jones to Ukiah in the summer of 1965. Once they were moved and established and started writing back to their families in Indiana to tell them how great California was, which is like, not a hard sell, you know, like, Mm -hmm. California to Indiana. Like, of course, of course. Right.
0: It's definitely an upwards move.
1: (laughs) Right, right. And so they were able to get another 50 to join them. But that is to say that the original group which had followed Jones was very small, and a lot of people thought it was a bad idea to follow him. The follower who bought the monkey from Jones that I was telling you about, Mm -hmm. Edith Cordell, she actually went to a psychiatrist to get a statement for her family that she was of sound mind before she made the trip out west with him.
0: Oh well, like she's making it. See, my my psychiatrist says that it's a good idea. (laughs)
1: Well, my psychiatrist at least says that I can still think for myself, and that you can't tell me no. Right? Yeah. Right. So yeah, there's already like red flags being raised, and family members being like, "Oh, let's tap the brakes," and people are like, "Nope, nope, I'm joining." Nope, we're moving to Cali. Yep, I'm going back to Cali, Cali. And everyone who moved to Ukiah was completely uprooting their lives. Like I said, you know, they had to Mm -hmm. quit their jobs, get new jobs. And they were doing it because they truly believed in the message, whatever it was, the religion or the racial equality, socialism, or, you know, they genuinely feared nuclear fallout and wanted to be protected. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And moving across a country was a big step, but they were willing to do it because they were still believing they were gonna do good with their lives. You know, they believed they would be safe, they would have somebody they could trust to help them, and they could continue to do community outreach, right? So they were like, this is a good thing. This is, this is something we're willing to uproot everything we have in pursue. Mm-hmm. Now that they had moved and proven their loyalty, they had to get new full-time jobs to support themselves, and they had to work extra hard for the temple because they'd moved for the temple, And, basically, Jones was expecting them to, like, work as hard for the temple as he and Marslin had been working for the temple. Mm. They were just driving themselves into the ground for the cause, and cause with a capital C. Like, I think this is when the idea of the cause was born. Like. Mm. His when it went beyond just a church when it been, went beyond a church when it went beyond this like idea of community outreach and socialism like the people who survived Jonestown talk about the cause a lot and with a capital C, especially in Debbie Layton's book. and it always was kind of nebulous. like you knew what it was, you knew that it was socialism, but like you had to drop everything for the cause. I don't know. It just seems like another, like, having that capital C cause. It just seems like another big red flag. I don't I don't know right. what it is about it. New recruits in California included students from night classes that Jones taught as his job outside the temple, as okay. well as at-risk teenagers who were bag- battling drug addiction and, you know, a new adulthood away from their families, from which some of them were estranged. And so he's taking people who have nobody else. Mm-hmm they were perfect targets for him and he also targeted he's been doing this the whole time that he targeted black communities who were reeling from the 1969 assassination of Martin Luther King jr. by bringing dozens of people's temple members to the funeral service for MLK in oh, San Francisco That's super predatory yeah yeah like yeah. it's one this, thing to that's be... beyond
0: going to to the poor neighborhoods yeah. like, but going to a funeral service and trying to leech your... Yeah, uh,
1: that's what it is, too, because okay. it's not like he was like, oh, we just lost a great leader and everybody right. wanted to he's come up their own out volition, of, you know? Yeah,
0: he's not there out of actual sympathy. Yeah.
1: And yeah, okay. Yeah. 1969 was also the year that Jones took on a mistress and that Debbie Layton, whom I mentioned earlier she would be slowly pulled into his orbit you know she first heard his sermon in 1969 or 1970 and so he just slowly started to pull her in Mm. debbie was brought into the temple by her brother and then i talked about larry and carolyn a bit but he really he inserted himself in their marriage and then Jim started to introduce Carolyn to his children as his quote special friend. But he didn't mm-hmm. let his congregates know that he was cheating on his wife, even though his children were like here, you know, they were introduced to this Carolyn. Is my special friend. Yeah. Right. And Debbie, who was new to the congregation, like saw how he insinuated himself in Larry and Carolyn's marriage, and like Carolyn's family was very aware of what was going on. They were like, What why did you just suddenly divorce Larry? And she was like, Oh, I just I'm really in love with Jim. And they were like, Oh. Yeah, did did Marceline know about the affair with Carolyn? (sighs) Yes, yes, she did, and that was she complicit,
0: like, or she didn't really she didn't really have a choice in the matter at this time. I would say
1: she didn't have a choice in the matter, and he probably hid it from her at first. But Stephen Jones has this heartbreaking story on the the Jonestown website that I was talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. where he was taken with Jones on a trip. And he was like, hey, dad and I are hanging out. This never happens. And Jones took him to this cabin. And it was Carolyn's cabin. And Jones and Carolyn went into a back bedroom. And Stephen could hear what they were doing. And he was like, oh, no. Oh, no. You're really right. supposed to do that with mom. And then Carolyn sang a song to Jones. And Stephen could hear it. And it was just probably that song was ruined for him forever. And sure he he felt the need to protect his mom from this. And so mm. he came back and Marceline was like, how was your trip? And Stephen, you know, he was just kind of like, oh, it was good, it was okay. And Marceline said something like, I know where you went, I know what's going on. And he tried to deny because he was trying to protect her feelings. Protect he was his like, mom. yeah. No, 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 it's not like that with Carolyn, mom. He, she's just a special friend. And then Marceline sang the song that Carolyn had been singing to Jones. Oh. And Stephen was like, that's when I knew that she knew. So yeah, Marceline knew. Marceline probably felt like she wasn't able to, like, meet the demands of her husband or whatever because of her. Her health issues. Her health issues. And she was not happy with it, of course. But there was nothing she could do to stop him because, first of all, it was Jim Jones. and He was going to do whatever the fuck he was going to do. Right. But later on, when it came out and the whole congregation was made aware of what was happening because of other affairs that he was having or like everybody kind of knew because he prayed on a lot of members of his congregation and we'll get into that in more detail but everybody kind of knew they just didn't know that he had these like formal permanent relationships Mm -hmm. until this one meeting where everything was kind of coming to a head at the time Not as bad as in Guyana, but just like shit was coming up with interpersonal relationships and people were questioning the cause, you know, and Jones needed people to really like double down on it. And so Marceline was like, I'm willing to give up my relationship with my husband for the cause because that's the greater good. So it came out that Um. like everybody knew that she knew and they were like, well, if she's okay with it, like, I guess then I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So back to Debbie. Debbie Layton joined the People's Temple in 1969 and 1970. And then Carolyn's sister, Annie, she joined the People's Temple after graduating high school in 1972. Like these are just babies that he's praying on. That he's praying on. And Debbie actually eventually got her mother to join the temple. And there were so many entire families who joined that that's part of what made the decision to stay or go so much harder for so many people. And it just reminds me of so many other cults. Like, I don't. It would be hard to say it was a cult at this point, but with the moving to Ukiah and the, taking the, people, yeah. yeah, yeah, and like sure, that's, pe- a,
0: that's a definite.
1: That's a definite whole foot, not just a toe in right. the cult waters. Right, and of course, like people get their families to join. Their churches all the time, like when you think it's sure, just a church, but you're not moving across the country, right? But like, it reminds me of like Scientology a little bit, where they get your whole family to join, and then if you leave, your family has to just like forget that you fucking exist, right? And so it's like, right. well, I can't leave because then I have to leave everything and My everyone family. that I know. right? Yeah. By the time Debbie and Annie were being recruited, Jones was being touted in the media to the effect that he was like Martin Luther King Jr., Angela Davis, Albert Einstein, and Chairman Mao all in one. And he was telling his followers that in his past lives he was Jesus, the Bab of Babism, and Lenin and Marx. Lenin and Marx simultaneously, oh, who- at the same time. Right. I was living two lives at the same time. <laughs> yeah, and nice. when, when he was called- He was a busy man, busy man. <laughs> <laughs> and when he was called out on inconsistencies like this during sermons by people who knew about Russian history, or, you know, whatever it was that he was like saying his bullshit on, he would publicly humiliate and degrade whomever was calling him out. In the middle of the sermon they'd nice. be like, Uh, Lenin and Marx existed at the same time. Like, how is that possible? And he'd be like, How dare you? How dare you think that you're better than me and that you know more than me? Like, in front of everyone. But then later, privately, he would apologize and say that he just never needs to be called out because the congregants <laughs> need to believe him and believe in everything they, that he said so they would believe in the cause, right? Mm. And so it was See, hard I'm to- doing
0: this because of the cause. I'm sorry. Yes,
1: exactly. I'm, the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was hard for people to call him out because- they were also just already being broken down they were working 20 plus hour days you know at their full-time jobs for the people's temple and And it actually became a point of like like bragging for people where they would brag to each other about how little sleep they got because that was a way to show their devotion you know one woman Mm. claimed she was awake for six straight days one week because of how hard she was working yeah
0: not good yeah but and also more cult more yes. cult like leanings yes
1: <laughs> yes yeah it's it's one of those things where it's like it's not great for sure like if you find yourself listener if you find yourself in a situation <laughs> like this right now take a step back it's fine it's fine it's okay you yep. can say oh this is not a good situation it this might be a cult already and it's okay to identify that and say oh I don't like. It's time this. for me to go. It's nothing time for me to go. Nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean that whatever situation you're currently in is going to lead to a massacre, but it's not great for you either. You you deserve no. sleep. <laughs> yes, you do. Anyhow, but while doing this, they had a hard time functioning and doing more than what they were told, and they started to allow Jones to do their thinking for them. Which is well, they're too fucking tired to right. do their
0: own. And, and that's
1: totally what you were alluding <clears throat> by to design. when you're like, "That's a cult. Yeah. It's a cult, though." <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah like, And so... Yeah, but it, and it's by design. Yeah, I'm sure. And maybe, and maybe he didn't, because maybe he didn't realize. Like, but he was making them malleable. Like, maybe he didn't think oh, I'm gonna have them working so hard that I can just manipulate them into doing whatever I want. Mm -hmm. But maybe it was a byproduct of like, oh, these people are super malleable, now I can do whatever I want. Right, it's another test of your
1: loyalty. Mm -hmm. And it, chicken and the egg, I guess, but this is where he began to introduce the idea of situational ethics to them. And telling people that anything that supported the cause would be justified whether it was lying about Russia and Russian history or stealing mail or selling people religion when they were trying to spread socialism or creating blackmail tapes where members admitted to terrible things they had done or hadn't done just because they were in case they were ever considering defecting or speaking badly of the temple, they'd have these blackmail tapes. And if it was for the cause, it was fine. So it's kind of like he got them tired enough to believe this, but telling them this and then having them believe it, he was like, okay, there's another step. There's another, all right, that's how far I can go. That's the bounds of what I can do. And so he got them to fully believe that nothing was more important than the socialist cause, even the truth. Furthermore, he suggested to them that if they were really dedicated to socialism, they would give up everything that was bourgeois Right, which is totally something you can do to, like, liberals and lefties now, is be like, oh, you're so fucking bougie. Right, right. (laughs) So if they had extra clothes or furniture or extra money from their paychecks or their social security checks, because a lot of them are elderly and they Mm -hmm. weren't using that money for food or rent, that was bourgeois. And they shouldn't have it. And if they if they wanted to do things for themselves, like. Go to the movies or have relationships that was bourgeois and it didn't help the cause oh yeah yeah so, so it's cold. cold it's cold and I, I was gonna say it's this cold. is another red flag <laughs> it's a red flag if they don't let I you mean. have other relationships <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like they couldn't even have relationships with other people in the people's temple they couldn't even have friendships like if you were just like oh, shit. taking a quick break and like chatting somebody up about the latest sermon even unless you were like actively doing something to help this the cause capital c like you were you were fucking around but jim jones he was allowed to have relationships and he told his followers that even though you know relationships with family members or temple members was a distraction from the cause he was allowed to have relationships because he was the most dedicated to the cause. He also told them that everybody was actually homosexual and that even straight sex was just a way to distract themselves from their homosexual urges, which were all just distractions from the cause. And this train of thought, despite Jones being an edgelord who wanted to be pro anti on essentially everything was probably because Jones was a closeted bisexual and Nothing wrong with that, except that it manifested in him sexually assaulting multiple members of his congregation, men and women alike. And some of the women he was sleeping with became confidants in his inner circle, but others were just victims. Debbie Layton was raped by Jones on one of the Greyhound buses the People's Temple had bought in order to make cross-country recruiting trips over the summer. and. During the assault, she noticed something unusual about Jones, and that was that he smelled of alcohol. Alcohol was another bougie indulgence that was not permitted among people's temple members. Many of them were recovered drug and alcohol addicts, and maybe it wasn't the worst prohibition, especially on, you know, bus tours where everybody has to work together and you want to keep drama to a minimum. But, you know, I'm not sure about trying to enforce that in people's outside lives. Like, you can totally be like, maybe think about not having alcohol in your life, but, like, it's just a stretch. It's another big cult red flag where they're, like, controlling what you do. Right. But Jones was constantly on drugs in the 1970s. He would take amphetamines to get all the work done he needed to do and stay awake for three- and four-hour-long meetings with the People's Temple. Like, his sermons were so long that... At the sermon that Debbie Layton first saw with him, where he was speaking directly to her, afterwards, mm-hmm. she talked to Carolyn, and Carolyn said something about how, like, you know, the sermons really took a toll on him, and he, like, had this just bucket or whatever that he would, like, pee into while he was speaking. What? <laughs> and it's, like, weird and gross, but it's also, like, you get to pee, but nobody else gets to get up and nobody pee. Nobody else could- Well, just like nobody
0: else gets to do amphetamines to work 20 plus
1: hours a day. Right, right. Like
0: what's good for the goose is good for the gander, Mr. Jones. Like, come on, if they can like how. And that's one of those things where it's like he can't survive on it. How is he expecting everybody else to? Right, right.
1: So he would take amphetamines to stay up and then he would take quaaludes to go to sleep. And this is when the sunglasses was the 70s. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it was the '70s. <laughs> yes, and so Quaaludes were just everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. But this is when the sunglasses became a permanent part of his appearance to cover up his constantly red eyes. Mm. Like he'd had them occasionally because he was the cool pastor in the '70s, and so right, the haters. Right. But yeah, after after all the drugs, the glasses just like never came off. Gotcha. In turn. The drugs made him increasingly more paranoid, and he started to tell his followers that the FBI was going to infiltrate the People's Temple and that anyone who questioned or spoke out against the People's Temple was likely spying on them for the government. It must have simultaneously been giving him a major power trip when in 1971, the People's Temple expanded to Los Angeles and the number of people involved to some degree in the organization was around anywhere from 2 to tw- like 2,000 to 20,000 and there's that's a, a big whole... that's there's... a big gap but it's still but even on the low end of 2,000 that's a shit ton of people right right and so that's where I think the power trip come fr- comes from is that he had some influence over at least 2,000 people and the reason that I say it's de- debatable even though that's a whole order of magnitude is because he would lie and tell his inner circle and the people who like talked to the press and dealt with the people who, when it wasn't him, which it was usually him, but if it wasn't, he would tell them to lie and up their numbers. And so this mm-hmm. was reported in an <clears> article <throat> in the 70s that he had 20,000 people, but it's debatable as to whether or not that was the magnitude of Actual, his, yeah. right. Yeah.
0: But even still, 2,000 people, that's a, lot of, that's a lot from the couple dozen after the trip to Brazil. Yeah, you exactly. Know, exactly. Yeah.
1: He grew things up again pretty well. Right. And, you know, now that you have a lot of people, there is a good chance that people are coming and going and maybe shit's happening that you can't control in the same way that you could control it back when you were taking notes on people yourself and then speaking to them personally. So, yeah, I, I could see him having paranoia. He didn't trust the government to begin with, but it didn't stop him from doing any of his fucking bullshit it didn't deter him from fucking around and lying and manipulating people and one of the women in the people's temple named Grace Stone who didn't even really like Jim Jones when she first met him and only joined to support her husband Tim Stone who was an assistant district attorney Mm. which like they're gonna have a big part in this story But when they first joined, Grace was like, eh, they'll support you, whatever. But the fact that Tim joined was like, oh, we have an ADA now. Like, if you didn't think we're... We're getting power and influence. Well, and if you didn't think we were legit before, like, we're totes legit now. now. Yeah. Yeah. But Grace didn't even like Jim. And then she became pregnant with Jim's baby in 1971. So was the baby
0: a product of rape since she didn't like him? Or did their relationship change somehow?
1: It did change, and it wasn't the product of, like, rape in the sense that, like, Debbie Layton was raped by Jim. It right. was more like he still had this, like, degree of power over her. So right. I would argue that, yes, it was rape, but they also did But not did in have... the forcible sex rape. Right. They they still had some sort of relationship together. Gotcha. So John Victor Stone was born in January of 1972. And while his birth certificate listed both of the stones as his parents, it's likely that Jones was the father. And he not only argued this, but also made. Ugh, this is so fucked up. He made Tim Stone and Marceline, his wife, sign an affidavit that essentially agreed to as much, agreed to the fact that. That he was the father. Yes, that he got Grace pregnant Ugh. and all four of them knew about it. Ugh. And so, like, this is why earlier I was like. Stephen Jones, you know, Jim Jones' only biological son. We know that he had other children. Yeah. Right. Stephen Jones is the only surviving biological son. Mm. hmm Gotcha. So, but anyhow, regardless of the parentage of this little boy, his existence, John Victor's existence, would prove to be one of the thorns in the side of Jim Jones and his need for absolute power over those around him. But as the people's temple got bigger, it was getting harder for Jim Jones to have eyes, like I said, everywhere like he used to. And so part of what he did to keep eyes on his congregation is that he formed a group called the Planning Commission that was just members of his inner circle, inner circle, essentially. Initially, the Planning Commission were followers who came with him from Indiana to California because they were obviously the most loyal. Sure. But also carolyn layton grace stone and eventually debbie layton and then another woman named maria katsaris would become part of the inner circle or the planning commission and the planning commission for whatever reason and it was probably just another power trip because jim jones was an edgelord and was obsessed with sex the planning commission knew everybody who Jones was sleeping with, and they talked about it often. And he was sleeping with most of them. He was sleeping with Maria Katsaris, Karen Lynn Layton, And then I don't know to the extent that he still had a relationship with Stone, but they previously had enough to have a son. And, like, sometimes meetings would just be them talking about sex with Jones, which I'm sure he was like, oh, thrilled fun. about. But they also took on the role of deciding what punishments members of the People's Temple deserved. So, here's another it's cult, cult red flag. It's a cult, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a cult. Since many of the members were recovering addicts or people with jail time, they decided it was best to deal with problems internally. Because members, it's a cult. <laughs> <laughs> members were publicly humiliated in meetings for their indiscretions, including being a rape victim of Jones. He would make oh, them stand nice. up. He would make them stand up. He did this to Debbie after he raped her. He did this to Annie Moore after he raped her. And he would say, you basically tried to seduce me or you desired me. How dare you? Mm. Everybody tell her how much you hate her. Tell her how disgusting she is. Because the rape wasn't bad enough. Right. On top of being publicly humiliated, they might be forced to get extra hours of work. And that was on, like, the low end. That was on the the nicer end of the punishments. Sure. Sometimes they would be physical. A member found guilty of molesting a child, which everything is terrible. Everything is fucking horrible. Jones also molested a child, but he was never prosecuted for it because the family believed in the cause. They left the church, but they oh, were like, we won't God. prosecute. But another member who was found guilty of molesting a child was also not reported, but was beaten with a rubber hose. And then. And was he allowed to stay in the in people's temple? I think so. I, I can't remember if he did, but I think he was allowed to stay. Oh, wow. And then members were also forced to fight one another, fight club style, in closed door meetings. They would say, This is for people who are only permanent members. They would close the doors, and they would say, You too. Go at it. And then, when some person, when one one of them went down, the one who remained standing, they'd go another person just until they went down. Yeah. In the fall of 1972, eight Santa Rosa students who were temple members and children of bedrock temple families, so they were like either born into it or raised in the temple, they suddenly defected and they wrote a letter citing racism they perceived from jim jones and the inner circle who were all white
0: Mm. no so we're not so much for
1: equality as we once said (laughs) were we mr jones right do you want to read this quote from the letter they wrote
0: the fact is the eight of us have seen a grotesque amount of sickness displayed by staff the ridiculous double standard and dishonesty that's practiced does not agree with us There is not potential in the white population, according to you. Yet, where is the black leadership? Where is the black staff and black attitude? Black people are being tapped in the temple for money and nothing else. Staff has to be fucked in order to be loyal. Ugh, The thought of demanding your sensitivity and dedication in such a matter is grossly sick. Mm -hmm.
1: These students became known as the Gang of Eight, and they were the first major group of defectors from the temple. And Jones was about it
0: well yeah somebody's finally stepping up to him and saying what you're doing isn't right like mm-hmm. i don't think because this he hasn't i mean there have been defectors but not any not any of this number right at the and, same time
1: right and nothing of like this sort of magnitude. personally calling him out yeah 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 they
0: like the the other defectors may be quietly left whereas these people are saying no fuck you what you're doing is wrong
1: And we don't like it, so we're going to tell you about yourself. Right, right. And yet, despite all of the ways that People's Temple and Jim Jones was already deep into dark, culty-ass territory, on the surface, they appeared to be doing better than ever. The temple had moved from Ukiah to San Francisco and were being endorsed by leaders like Angela Davis and Rosalind Carter, the First Lady. Yeah. Yeah. And Jones and the People's Temple are basically the reason that George Moscone was elected mayor of San Francisco in 1975. And in return for that, Jones was appointed chairman of the San Francisco Authority Commission. So they are so out there. power. Yeah, they're out there. They're getting power. They're getting notoriety. But his power and his paranoia fueled a further need to expand and to move again. Like, he's still on this, like sure we're expanding to san francisco and they'll expand to well they moved to san francisco but we'll expand to los angeles eventually but he's still like we need to move and i think he still is saying like nuclear war is a little bit of it but so now he's pushing like it's not safe for the people's temple which is a socialist organization to remain in the united states because the united states is not sympathetic to that at all and socialism was still the ultimate you know uppercase c cause But for many members, the word of Jones was what kept them there. He was their father, which like people point out like, oh, he was called father. And to me, I'm like, isn't that a a normal thing for like you to refer to your pastor, pastor, minister's father, right? So right now, like it's not super weird. What is weird is that he says that he's like an earth god. He's their god on earth. And Mm. some some people do believe that. Normal pastors don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) You know who does do that? Call leaders. Call leaders. (laughs) And the father began telling them that the promised land awaited them. But he wasn't saying Mm. this promised land in the afterlife, of course, because he's never bought into that and he's never tried to sell that. What is awaiting them is an actual promised land that in October of 1973, the board of directors of People's Temple voted unanimously would be Guyana, South America. And this is where they believed was the most suitable relocation place for the people's temple. Reason being, Guyana was a socialist nation that spoke English because part of his difficulty in Brazil was that he didn't speak Portuguese. So he couldn't get roots anywhere.
0: <laughs> he <was> like, uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, so
0: I don't know what the fuck I'm doing here. <laughs>
1: And then Guyana Mm -hmm. also had a jungle which was, in Joan's mind, suitable for his agricultural ambitions and isolated enough from the rest of the country as to be difficult to infiltrate, which would prove to be true. Now, for Guyana, they were like, the jungle is difficult to grow agriculture, and if you guys can do it for us, sure. Sure. Yeah, feel free. We want to expand, but the jungle's hard to plant shit in. So there was a very like amicable situation between Jonestown, or the People's Temple in Guyana. Okay. The first pioneers, as they were called, landed in Guyana in March of 1974. They worked hard, so hard, to clear away the jungle because the trees were actually harder than the metal of chainsaw blades.
0: And oh, so shit.
1: what they had to do, they like brought up their chainsaws and just destroyed them. And they turned to the Guyanese who were with them and they are like, how do you do this? And so the Guyanese just took the tree and they just shifted it back and forth and back and forth until it like came out by the roots.
0: Oh my gosh, because there was no other, <laughs> no. no way to cut it down.
1: Yeah, and then, the, you know, the rest of the vegetation had to be hacked out with machetes, and yeah, it was, it was hard work. And they began, the, the, these pioneers, they began the agricultural projects. They built the first huts. And Jones, he actually visited this new development occasionally, but for the most part it was just this small group of people who had been sent ahead first. Lucky them. And, and I think <laughs> that, I think that this group and this again baby steps everything is baby steps it answers another one of the big questions for how the people's temple even came to have so many people isolated in the jungle because when you hear the story right where you're just like 918 people killed themselves is the story in the jungle as a Mm -hmm. cult you're like how did they get what how did they even get down there why why but it's baby steps and I think that part of the reason that so many of them were able to get down there is because they honestly believed in what they were doing. They saw the work that needed to be done, and in order to be, like, achieve the difference they wanted to see in the world, they knew that they'd have to put in a lot of effort, but it was totally worth it, right? And so to me, the move to Jonestown, Guyana is actually easier to understand than the first move to Ukiah, California, where the first move was that like- That makes sense. ...out of fear. This is This is out of the greater good. You know well and
0: and it seems like a lateral move you're in the same country you're not going to be achieving the same i mean you're going to a new place to achieve more of your you know goals of spreading equality and working in a new community whatever right but this is like we're setting up a
1: commune we're
0: we're making big money moves
1: now yeah exactly so aside from the pioneers other high-ranking members of the temple were also taking international trips Carolyn Layton herself went on a solo secret mission, air quotes, for the People's Temple in 1974 that, according to Jones, landed her in a Mexican jail where she was raped and conceived and birthed a child before she returned to the United States, with all the necessary parts of a nuclear warhead except the detonator. In reality, Carolyn had gone to live with her parents in Berkeley to give both to Jones's son in secret. So he has now two children outside of yeah. his marriage with Marceline. This boy was named Jim John, but went by Chemo or was called Chemo, which is supposedly the Hawaiian version of Jim. But I thought I, I don't interesting. Know, I don't know about that. Chemo was the only child in all of the People's Temple, including John John Stone, John Victor Stone who was allowed to be raised by birth parents rather than as a communal effort.
0: Mm, interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: In September of 1975, Jones surprised the planning commission by giving them wine made with surplus grapes from their vineyards in Mendocino County. And of course, wine and alcohol, they were forbidden. So everybody was like, ooh, this is a treat. And... we get to,
0: yeah, we get to actually get a
1: little tipsy. All right. right. He mingled throughout the party, making sure everybody had had a little bit, and then he informed them that the wine was poisoned and they would be dead within 45 minutes. No. He watched their reactions to see who was okay with it, who panicked, but Stephen Jones doesn't think that this was practice. Like, you could definitely read this as like, oh, he had something in mind and it was practice. Stephen Jones, he just thought that it was just a test of loyalty. Okay. Curiously, this was around the same time that he really started hammering the idea of revolutionary suicide and getting a feel for it, like who was on board with it and who was uncomfortable with the notion. And according to Tim Carter, Jim Jones would say things like, when I go, I'm going to take as many people with me as I can. Mm. So he might still be thinking like you know grand scheme of things but i don't i I, it's hard to say where he's going but i would trust stephen jones insight to think that this Mm -hmm. was not necessarily like him revving up for a Jonestown massacre it was just him being fucked up and a cult leader yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) the following year jones faced another major defection grace stone She wasn't able to take John John with her because it would draw too much attention and she believed he was generally well taken care of within the people's temple. She was no longer in any kind of intimate relationship with Tim Stone, but her defection also posed a threat that Tim might go and Mm. then take John John with him. And not just because of the contested parentage of the boy, but also because Tim Stone knew about the foreign bank accounts and could completely destroy the people's temple if he wanted to. So if they lost him, it was going to be a big time problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Only about two weeks after Grace defected, a woman named Joyce Shaw also defected in July of 1976. Shaw was married to a man named Bob Houston, who was on the planning commission and chose not to defect. On October 4th, 1976, Houston was found crushed to death in the rail yard where he worked. As a member of the temple, Houston was severely overworked. But Temple members didn't quite buy the explanation that Houston had simply fallen asleep on the tracks and gotten run over by a train. Nor did Houston's father, who worked as a photographer for the Associated Press, and was an acquaintance of U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan. So was there suspected foul play? Yes. Yes. By at least some people. And like, yeah, it seems fucked up. Like, I don't know how exhausted that you can get that you fall asleep on the train tracks. You know, that Ryan right. I don't know. It does seem like probably foul play to me as well. Okay. Now Ryan could either be seen as a politician with a hands on approach to change or as somebody who was desperate for publicity any time he did anything. He had previously championed prison reform by staying in Folsom prison for eight days. And many members of the People's Temple originally came from Ryan's congressional district. So when Houston's father approached him, he was interested, but not especially motivated. Part of his disinterest, aside from just being a politician, was that Mm. Jones showed the public an entirely different face than he showed the members of the temple behind closed doors. And we've already drawn this comparison, but just to reiterate... Being in a cult is very much like being in an abusive relationship. And the way that Jim behaved is exemplary of that. The public saw him working with Mayor Moscone and feeding the homeless and running therapy facilities and making jokes and being charismatic. And they didn't see the side of him that was the sexual assault and the drug use and the violence. And this is another reason that it's like making jokes or like Making hasty judgments is just fucked up because, like, I'm sure there are people out there who haven't been in fucked up relationships where they felt manipulated, but I can't say that I have. Like, I've been in situations that I probably could have gotten myself out of by saying, Hey, no, I don't like this, but I didn't. Like, I'm not above that, you know? Right. Boundaries are hard. Yeah. Boundaries are hard. (laughs) And when, like, you, you believe in what you're doing or you genuine, genuinely believe in the person and they have like a lot of good attributes worth, worth sticking around for, you right. find it hard to justify leaving and leaving all of your friends and your family behind, you know? And everything you know. Yeah. Like everything that is your life because
0: it's completely encapsulated at this
1: point. Yeah. But Jones had started to cross people in power. The loser of the 1975 mayoral election, John Barbagalata, blamed voter fraud for his defeat and said that it was the temple votes that cost him his seat. And not that he was exactly wrong, because the margin of difference was so small in the election and the number of people's temple votes was so large that it really couldn't be argued against. Like, Mm. they basically did make him lose that election. Barbara Gulotta harbored a grudge against Jones and the temple and began looking into them. And what he was able to find, without even knowing people on the inside, was that foster children were being sent to Guyana, and the public funds being sent to support them were actually being given to the temple. He contacted a reporter at New West Magazine named Marshall Kilduff to investigate this further, and after pressuring the editor, he was granted permission to write an article on the temple. Jones found out about this article because he tried to have eyes and ears mm-hmm. everywhere, and he was actually able to get the story killed. But then oh. a new person became editor at New West, and it was picked up again in April 1977 by Kilduff and Phil Tracy. For the article, Kilduff interviewed Jones, but he also interviewed more than a dozen defectors from the temple, and their statements mm. were damning. I'm sure they were. Mm-hmm they wrote about how jones traveled with a security force and the temple had two sets of locked doors which were guarded during the closed door sunday sermons you know the fight club sermons
0: well and i mean because he was there was an attempt of assassination so you gotta keep him
1: safe (laughs) yeah (laughs) the former members admitted to the so-called catharsis sessions where the congregants would be torn down and publicly humiliated and the brutal paddlings for minor infractions, the blackmail threats, the fake cancer healings, the fake assassination attempts. There was more than one at this point actually. Oh, okay. So, there is an a, there were assassination attempts that they told
0: plural. Yeah. Yeah, killed okay, off and Tracy nice. about
1: And they also told about the culture of reporting on one another that kept people from defecting earlier or from being able to bring their friends and families with them when they did defect, like all these red flags for it being a cult. The defectors described how members feared that the things Jones said about nuclear war and the government coming to get them to put them in concentration camps might be true. And... Ultimately, how life with Jones seems safer than what he told them was happening outside the temple. Mm. There were already 600 people who had been moved to Guyana, including John Johnstone. Moving the entire population of the temple was supposed to take something like 10 years, and that would give them time to spread out the use of forged passports to build up the town gradually as a slow but steady influx of people that came and needed food and housing, and then they could in turn assist with the construction. Mm-hmm. You know, It was supposed to be this like kind of slow process. But then, in July of 1977, ahead of the publication of the New West article, things changed overnight. The editor of New West called to inform Jones of the content of the article, and although he tried to fight it, there was no stopping the publication. Mm. Jones knew it would destroy the temple. He didn't know the exact, like, the exact content, but he was read, like, the subsection headlines. And and, and it's
0: not, yeah, and and when he already, if he knows that the defectors are going on the record, he knows it's
1: not exactly going to be flattering. Yeah, yeah. So he knew that it was just going to destroy the temple. It was going to destroy everything he worked so hard to build. So that night, the inner circle began working to mobilize 800 people nationwide to Guyana. And like there were some they were they were mostly in San Francisco and Los Angeles, but they were also moving people around the country so that there wouldn't just be this like sudden like flight of people from San Francisco because mm. that would look suspicious. And so, some of them flew out of San Francisco, some of them were bused to different countries, and then all of them, most of them at least, were supposed to fly to South America from these various locations. Some stayed behind, like Larry Layton was ordered to stay in the U.S., and part of that was because Jones didn't actually like him. Like, Larry Layton was very much devout to Jones and was loyal to Jones, but Jones didn't really like him. Oh. And Marceline also did not fly out right away. She ended up taking the heat for Jones after the story hit the newsstands in August and Jones had already fucking got out of Dodge. That sucks. Yeah. Many survivors still describe life in Guyana as hard work, but also as one of the happiest times in their life. Like before everything totally went to shit. People Mm -hmm. still have very fond memories of Guyana. They were surrounded by their closest friends and family. They were surrounded by people who were kind and smart and funny. And at the same time, the work was just unbearable. It was hard and it was never ending. And Jonestown was not ready for the sudden influx of so many people when Jones announced the exodus from the United States. And the reality of Jonestown was also not what people had come to expect from the letters they were getting from the pioneers Mm -hmm. and from the couple hundred people who were out there. They'd seen videos of like, you know, bananas supposedly grown on the 27,000 acreage tended to by the pioneers and had seen videos of people declaring how happy they were with life in the jungle. But the bananas had been bought from the store. The pioneers (laughs) were tired, malnourished, their contact with the world outside of Guyana had been censored, so their letters home had been censored. And so when the new arrivals showed up in Georgetown, Guyana. They still had another 25-hour boat trip through the Caribbean, around essentially around Guyana, to the mouth of the Kaituma River. They went down the Kaituma River until Port Kaituma, which was a little town, and then they were loaded onto a flatbed truck to be taken two hours by dirt road into the jungle. Upon their mm. arrival in Jonestown proper, members had their belongings searched. Letters were confiscated. Medications were collected for the infirmary that were likely given to Jones instead. And many items deemed unnecessary were taken for sharing within the community. Their passports were also confiscated. It's a cult. <laughs> I repeat. It's it, a cult. At this point, <laughs> it's so too late. Like,
0: when it's, you... Oh, yeah. When, when you you you're, when you're the fleeing jungle. the country. <laughs> when you're fleeing the country and you're being driven through the jungle on a flatbed truck it's there's no turning back at this point well you still could turn back if your passport wasn't confiscated right right like there's there's no turning back like
1: they he's fucked them all royally
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: the newcomers to Jonestown were also not equipped to help expand the town the way the pioneers and other members before them were a third of Jonestown residents were elderly and another third were children There were more mouths to feed and more huts needed for shelter, but fewer people to help accomplish the task. Disease and injury were also common in Jonestown as the work was hard and the jungle was unforgiving. Jones, he of course, thought ahead and he found a man named Larry Schacht to attend to the ailments of the settlers. But Schacht could hardly be called a doctor. He Hmm. met Jones through the San Francisco addiction program and had cleaned up, which is a testament to the success of the temple. True. But he still didn't have what it took to finish his medical degree. So Jones sent him to a Mexican medical school paid for by the People's Temple and then got him certified in the U.S. before shipping him off to Jonestown. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Well, he needed somebody, I suppose. Mm-hmm.
1: Daily life in Jonestown was difficult, but when Jones himself was present, his aura, which he had claimed for so long to be healing, caused a dark cloud to descend just over the whole settlement. He brought Mm. his paranoia and egoism with him. He literally played 24 hour broadcasts over the speakers, which could be heard in nearly every part of the town. Some of the outskirts of like the agricultural, the fields, you know, you couldn't quite hear it, but they were meant to be heard everywhere all the time he also continued to hold long services that would last into the early morning where he would continue to humiliate people and rant at them he would read them the news and add lies like the membership of the kkk was up a hundred percent and the members of the pentagon were planning to exterminate Uh, black people and you know just
0: like complete began to fear mongering Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: he also told the people of jonestown that they still had enemies coming after them in the jungle, and Jones. So they're of course, he's not letting them feel safe. No, they're only safe even in the their confines new... of Jonestown. Yeah. But like, yeah, Jones of course did have enemies. We've already established that. And after the publication of the New West article and the flight of hundreds of members to South America, a group of worried friends and family was formed called the Concerned Relatives. So now he has this like group, an actual group that's. Mm-hmm. It's everything that he's been saying that they have, but now they actually have it. It's not a government association, but they do have a group that's like trying to take them down. Right. Or take him down, you know. So the Stones were part of the group. And even before its formation, they were working together to try to get their son back and try to stop Jones from building Jonestown. And had had both of them left? Both of the parents left? They had both left at this point, okay, yeah, Okay. Although I don't think that Tim had quite told them he had left because he was, I think he was still able to work in and out a little bit. So, okay, Tim was trying to like work, not both sides, but he was trying to like get as much information as he could to help the concerned okay. relatives. Um, okay. And this was despite the fact that they were both going through a divorce, but they were like, you know, we need to help the people in Jonestown and we need to get our son back. Yeah. So, Jones was ordered to produce John John to Grace after she was awarded custody in October of 1977. But, of course, he did not do that. John John remained at Guyana, along with the other children for whom Jones was an actual father or who were supposed to regard him as one. But all of his actual children were either adults or, like, late teenagers at this point. Okay. He didn't have guardianship over really anyone. And so now a third of his flock was being threatened by the US government. And another interesting thing I wanna point out here is like earlier he was referred to as father, right? And I was Mm -hmm. like, that's, I don't think that's super weird. Now he's referred to as dad. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah, that's a little, that's a step in the wrong direction. Step in the cult direction. Cult direction, (laughs) yeah. So, Grace Stone's attorney, Jeffrey Haas, flew down to Georgetown and then to Port Kaituma to appear in court and begin the process of getting the five-year-old John John back. Jones knew Haas was in Guyana and staged an attack on himself the night before he was supposed to appear in court. According to Jim Jones Jr., his father told him that he believed Jonestown was going to be invaded and Jim Jr. needed to help him convince people that it was actually happening. So Jim Jr. set himself up with a rifle near Jones's cabin and then shot in his general direction when Jones came out. He had been assured that Jones's guards would be in on this whole thing and they wouldn't shoot back. But his adopted brother Tim Tupper and a member named Johnny Cobb were not informed of this plan and so they shot oh. back at Jim Jr. So, you know, he... <laughs> Jones got okay. what he wanted, but he almost killed his son. His, uh, his son, like yeah
0: his namesake
1: yeah yeah but Mm. you know the members they're put on high alert and now we we genuinely have to fear attacks from intruders and you know jones he had what he wanted he didn't show up for court and the next day he ordered everyone who was working the fields to hurry back to the main part of the settlement as soon as possible everyone needed to be ready to fight immediately even the children and the elderly everybody was armed with like shovels and machetes and whatever and then he sent guards armed with rifles to watch the road. And for hours, everyone waited. For two days, they waited. And then Jones kept telling them that the enemies were coming, but they hadn't yet been located, but they were definitely still out there. And eventually he decides that, okay, everybody needs to be put on trucks and taken to Port Kaituma. And then from there, they could take their boat, because they had a little like temple boat, and they could take that to Cuba and get away to Cuba. But when the first wave of members got to the boat, a woman fell and broke her hip, and the whole mission oh, no. was aborted. Yeah, and
0: and what was he gonna do once they got to like he was just trying to evacuate everybody to Cuba to get out of Guyana because of this this false attack. Yeah, well, because he was being
1: ordered into court to give up John John. Gotcha. So gotcha. Yeah. So everyone, you know, they they get off the boat, and everybody returns to Jonestown, and now they have to wait through what Jones is calling a siege. Now he's saying that we're being sieged. And Haas tried again to meet with Jones and got as far as the Jonestown gate before the followers sentry there told him that an attempt had been made on Jones's life and that they refused to accept the order for Jones to appear in court. They are like, we're not going to accept this on his behalf. And so the next day, a bench warrant was issued for Jones's arrest. hmm so now John Jones's warnings that the government was coming for John John and essentially all of their children was basically proven. He basically was able to say, see, they are coming to take our kids. Yeah. <laughs> OK. <laughs> OK. <laughs> so Jones radioed and told Marceline that everyone in Jonestown was prepared to die. Like, we are ready to go through this. And even Jones's son, Jimmy and Steven, were made to tell her that they agreed with him. And so she worried that her husband was about to order a mass suicide to commence. Like, everything is so close to, like, that 12 o'clock danger hour that she was like, oh, fuck. It's actually happening. Yeah. So she worked to track down the Guyanese deputy prime minister, which, like, it's not like she had, like, the Internet or anything like that. She had to, like, call people and track him down. And eventually she did. And so she was able to get the Deputy Prime Minister to assure Jones that there would be no attack on Jonestown and no arrest of Jones. And so Jones took this and he told his exhausted people, we won, we won the siege, yay, we won. Okay. Even though they hadn't seen like any signs of an attack. Of an, right. Yeah, but as far as they knew, it was over, it was all over. And this would later be called the Six Day Siege, by the people who attempted to defend Jonestown against their unseen enemies without knowing the full story. But it can also be considered the first white knight of Jonestown. What are these white knights? White knights were drills that occurred sporadically and often, when Jones would awaken everyone in the settlement by shouting over the PA that they needed to come down to the pavilion and ready themselves. He would make them stand, waiting for hours in an emergency to show itself or, you know, for the emergency to fizzle out. And he would just drone on and on at them about his paranoias. Like, same thing that he was doing in this first one, where mm, mm-hmm. they, they don't see any danger, but they would hear. Danger's everywhere. Danger's everywhere. And they would hear gunfire from the jungle, but the followers in the pavilion never knew that the gunfire were fellow temple members and the different groups in the jungle were unaware that it was their own people who were firing at them as well the call is coming from inside the house <laughs> <laughs> yeah fucking yeah
0: excellent okay so he's completely gaslighting
1: them at this point mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and By this point, he had a very small inner circle. So he had the planning commission, but now he has a very small inner circle working with him in Jonestown, with whom he discussed the purpose and means of some of these white knights. And I should point out, it's white knight like N-I-G-H-T. He was fixated completely on revolutionary suicide. More accurately, just simple mass homicide, right? We've already talked about this This was a massacre. Mm -hmm. But he was going to call it revolutionary suicide, and he brought the topic up to the few people who wouldn't talk him down from it. This included quack doctor Larry Schacht, Carolyn Leighton, Maria Katsaris, and then Jean and Phyllis Chaykin. In January, were they? They're, I, they're just... I, she's followers. a nurse. But yeah, they're just okay. followers. Okay. In January or February of 1978, Jones asked Shacht a question who replied in a note. Quote, There is a good chance I can develop germicidal means. I'm quite capable of organizing the suicidal aspect and will follow through and try to convey concern and warmth throughout the ordeal. Around this same time, Carolyn Layton's sister, Annie Moore, who was also well-ensconced in Jones's inner circle, and she was actually his private nurse by this time, she penned a note with her thoughts on revolutionary suicide. Do you want to read this one? I never thought
0: people would line up to be killed, but actually think a select group would have to kill the majority of people secretly without the people knowing it. The way, I don't know, poisoning food or water supply I heard of, exhaust fumes in a closed area, carbon monoxide, I heard was effective even while people are asleep. It would be terrorizing for some people if we were to have them all in a group and start chopping their heads off. Or whenever. This is why it would have to be secretly. Jesus.
1: But after considering all of the options presented to him by his inner circle, Jones preferred the poison idea. On February 16th, 1978, a white knight was called. After hours of standing and listening to gunfire in the jungle, Jones's guards placed an aluminum vat in the pavilion near Jones's chair. According to Debbie Layton, Jones said, quote, the mercenaries are coming. The end has come. Time is up. Children, line up into two queues, one on either side of me. It tastes like fruit juice, children. It will not be hard to swallow. Those who objected were forcibly removed by the guards and they were made to drink first. Debbie heard Stephen Jones muttering, quote, the fucking bastard, it's another bloody drill, that's all, another fucking scare tactic. Jones announced to the group that in 45 minutes they would be dead exactly as he had back in san francisco it wasn't until the last person drank that he told them that they hadn't actually drank anything it was a test and they had passed as a treat for their loyalty they would be given the day off and cookies at dinner oh cookies yay (laughs) totally worth the fear that i might have died you're right While everyone was sacrificing all that they had for the People's Temple, and some more vocal followers were willing to sacrifice their lives and the lives of their children for the cause, Jones was hardly sacrificing anything. His drug addictions were fed with barbiturates and amphetamines the entire time he was there. He drank, he still had sex with whomever he wanted to, and he was the only person in the whole settlement who actually ate well enough to gain weight during their stay.
0: Not surprising. Mm -hmm.
1: On March 14, 1978, the concerned relatives got more ammunition for their campaign to Congress to act on Jonestown, when a member of the People's Temple wrote a letter which read,
0: We at People's Temple have been the subject of harassment by several agencies of the U.S. government and are rapidly reaching a point at which patience is exhausted. I can say without hesitation that we are devoted to a decision that is better even to die than to be constantly harassed from one continent to the next. I hope you can look into this matter and protect the right of over a thousand people to live in peace.
1: The concerned relatives then had Tim Stone and Maria Katsaris' father, Stephen, draft a 48-page document entitled, Accusation of human rights violations by Reverend James Warren Jones against our children and relatives at the People's Temple Jungle Encampment in Guyana, South Africa. Which just rolls off the tongue.
0: Yeah, you're right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this document was then signed by 25 relatives of 37 Jonestown members. And then, on May 13th, 1978, Debbie Layton defected from Jonestown.
0: Nice. <laughs> and Debbie's getting out.
1: She's getting out. And it was... It was difficult, and it was hard, and it was almost thwarted by, like, the the consul and the U.S. Embassy people. Like, they were so fucking incompetent And her retelling of it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Larry Layton, who had been made to stay in California up to this point, was brought to Jonestown and forced by Jones to make a statement refuting Debbie's claims over the radio. Both Larry and his mother Lisa told reporters that, quote, we are treated beautifully here which mm, like bet. it just sounds so like <laughs> unnatural and they both say it in the in the article that I read like it's just like mm. yes
0: we're we're treated so
1: wonderfully here
0: <laughs> everything is fine everything is fine
1: yeah <laughs> and then they're just like aggressively blinking because they're like please help us <laughs> <laughs> Part of the reason Debbie Layton was able to defect is because she had been sent on a mission to pick up Carolyn and Annie's parents, who had been summoned to Jonestown as visitors, in part to quell the fear of the concerned relatives. Nothing was particularly amiss during their visit, but they were concerned about the overall culture of Jonestown, and especially the influence that Jones had over their daughters. Rightfully so. Yeah. Their visit, of course, did little to alter the course that the concerned relatives were taking, and there was probably nothing at that point that could have pumped the brakes for Jim Jones. Despite Mm. being sued for a collective $56.4 million for various offenses and the ongoing custody battle-slash-arrest warrant, his main concern was now Debbie Layton and what she might be doing to destroy the People's Temple from the United States, and what concerned Jones concerned his inner circle. Sometime in May of 1978, Larry Schacht wrote the following memo to Jim Jones, which is the first known written communication where cyanide is discussed. Quote, cyanide is one of the most rapidly acting poisons. I had some misgivings about its effectiveness, but from further research, I have gained more confidence in it, at least theoretically. I would like to give about two grams to a large pig to see how effective our batch is to be sure we don't get stuck with a disaster like would occur if we used thousands of pills to sedate the people and then the cyanide was not good enough to do the job. I also want to order antidotes just in case we may need to reverse the poisoning process on people. Eli Lilly Company puts out a kit or we could buy the chemicals. One, sodium nitrate, sodium thiosulfate, both for intravenous administration. We should get enough for about 200 people. Cyanide may take up to three hours to kill, but usually it is within minutes. If it had to be reversed, it could be without significant damage to the central nervous system. Symptoms of cyanide poisoning are increase of respiratory rate at first, and then depression, blue color, headache, loss of consciousness, asphyxia, and seizures, which precede death often." End quote. He also added, though, I think we should kill Debbie Layton, even though this is not pragmatic and in fact could drive suicidal people into traitorous acts just to elicit a vengeful murderous act from the group. Leaving People's Temple is a form of suicide. It is suicide. Although Jeff Gwynn, author of The Road to Jonestown, suggests that cyanide was first purchased after the February white night, Given that there was no mention of cyanide prior to this memo, I believe that this is when Jones gave shocked permission to follow through on his suggestion. He ordered one pound of sodium cyanide for $8.85, enough to kill 1,800 people. Well, what a hell of a bargain. With help from Grace Stone, Debbie Layton got a lawyer to help her draft an 11-page, 37-point affidavit in June of 1978 entitled The Threat and Possibility of Mass Suicide by Members of People's Temple, where she described in detail the conditions of daily life in Jonestown, Jones's obsession with death and mass suicide, and the February White Night. Although she did not have all of the information that Annie Moore, Carolyn Layton, or Larry Schacht had, She was able to describe how aides in People's Temple were using ham radios to order guns and had armed themselves with around 200 or 300 rifles, 25 pistols, and a homemade bazooka, which were codenamed Bibles in the radio broadcast. So he would say, like, we need more Bibles. Oh, my God. Yeah. Members assaulted one another as punishment, and there was apparently a hole in the ground called a box where people would be sent for a day or more at a time as a form of discipline. She emphasized that the lives of people in Jonestown were in immediate danger and that the United States government needed to do something urgently.
0: So does anybody
1: heed her call? Yeah. This affidavit was read by Leo Ryan and was the exact evidence of Americans being held against their will that he needed to mobilize him to do something on behalf of the concerned relatives. So Okay, first, well, this is good news. Right. First, Ryan sent Jones a telegram announcing his intention to visit Jonestown later in the month. And then on November 13th, 1978, Ryan had Layton give testimony in Washington, D.C., along with Grace Stone and Stephen Katzaris. As Ryan's visit approached and Jonestown continued to fall into financial ruin, talk of mass suicide among Jones and his inner circle continued in earnest. In one memo written by Carolyn Layton around mid-November, she suggests pills, which Shocked also suggested and then was like, I don't don't think that that would necessarily work out. Mm -hmm. Jones was also concerned about what he would do once the congressman was in town. He expressed his feelings that Leo Ryan was a sworn enemy and that he'd like to kill him, but he was also concerned with keeping up appearances. Two of Yeah, his you so- can't
0: say that there's that everything's going fine, there's not a problem, and kill the person who's coming to check you out. Like yeah. you can't
1: do <laughs> Yeah, you can't do both. It's just it's coming to such a head because like his his whole like facade is falling apart but people are actually Mm -hmm. coming to get him so it's like reinforcing what he's telling people like it's all just right oh it's bad it's so bad it's one big fucked up circle jerk (laughs) at this point like (laughs) two of his sons steven and jim jr were in georgetown playing a basketball tournament Marcelin had encouraged them to attend because Jonestown like they didn't have a whole lot going for them but they did have a basketball team and Guyana okay. allowed them to play against their like I think national teams or maybe their okay I don't know they they allowed them to play against their teams but they didn't allow, uh, allow them to play in like sanctioned tournaments but they were like they were really bad they <laughs> I mean they were Probably all why like they allowed them to play <laughs>
0: well because well, they're all malnourished and overworked
1: exactly exactly <laughs> like, but it's like this like little little like light that they have is like oh i get to play basketball and like leave jonestown for a period right, of time right right and so like marceline had told them like yeah you should go like it doesn't matter that you're not here when the congressman is and she might have been like seeing that shit was going to go down and was like no babies mm. go um right and you know Jones, obviously, he wanted them to return because he thought that there might be, like, a confrontation that went down in Georgetown that would be out of his control. But Mm. Stephen Jones, he refused to bring the team back. He was like, we're having way too much fun. I'm not going to get involved in your stupid bullshit with the congressman. Like, leave us alone. So on November 15th, Leo Ryan arrived in Georgetown with two of his staff members, Jackie Spear and James Schallert along with nine members of the media from NBC, the National Enquirer, the Washington Post, and others, and 14 members of the concerned relatives, including the Stones, Maria Katsaris' father and brother, former Gang of Eight members, and Marceline's friend, Bonnie Burnham. At first, they had difficulty gaining entrance to Jonestown, and this was probably just as well for Ryan, who just wanted to show up to show he was trying, I think was probably it. Like I don't think he mm-hmm. actually anticipated like getting into Jonestown. He was just
0: like, look, I'm trying to do the thing.
1: Right. I went down there, like, what else can you ask me to do? Right. But eventually Jones gave in, telling them that if they flew to the Port Kaituma airstrip, rather than arriving by boat, that they would be granted access. So he didn't want to send their boat out to them, but he was like, fine, if you fly in, whatever, we'll accept you. And then they could be in in and out in less than 24 hours, and Jones could just be done with the whole thing, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. Of course, Jonestown had to be cleaned up before the arrival of the congressman. And then everybody had to, like, kind of be given their script of what to say Mm. when the congressman and the press showed up on November 17th. So when the reporters started to interview people, they got a lot of calm, rote responses that you can hear on the original NBC footage. And then, like, a huge dinner was cooked to make it appear as though Jonestown was prosperous and doing well, but it was probably the best that people had eaten in, like, a while. And then there was there was a huge celebration. There was singing and dancing. And Ryan basically bought into the whole thing, right? He was like,
0: like oh, what's so bad about all this?
1: Right. And, like, you can see that on the footage, too, is that he's like, it looks like you're doing pretty good on here. And, like, the room, the pavilion just bursts into applause. Like aggressively enthusiastic, long applause that it it's just like kind of inappropriate for the situation. Mm. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't seem 100% authentic, especially retrospectively, right? Sure. And then a note was passed. One of the reporters was given a note by a Jonestown member who thought that he was Leo Ryan. And he tried to be quick, but he fumbled the note and then a kid saw it. And he called it out, like, totally Brave New World style, like, he's passing a note, right? Because all the kids were told the same shit, like, report on your neighbor because if they're trying to, like, undermine the cause. So the other news crews apparently hadn't caught on to the whole event, the passing of the note, but Jones definitely did. Like, he had hawk eyes on everybody who was near the media. And the note read, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, please help us get out of Jonestown. Mm. And so, you know, the congressman and the media that night, they're, like, trying to, like, figure out what they can do. And then the next day, Saturday, November 18th, 1978, just before dawn, two groups of 11 people escaped from Jonestown, including three children who had been given fruit punch mixed with Valium so that they would be quiet enough to make their escape. Like, everyone feels the tension. And so that's when these people were, like... We got to get out of here. And their timing couldn't Mm -hmm. have been better. Running into the jungle had been attempted before, of course, but many were afraid to do so and with good reason. The jungle was so dense that staying oriented was literally impossible. And it was full of dangerous plants and animals that could easily injure or kill a weakened Jonestown resident. These 11 had a plan, though, like, and individually, like, they didn't plan it together. They, like, met up with each other in the jungle and were like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah okay let's roll and so they decided that they would find the railroad tracks that they knew cut through the jungle and they would follow them until they reached civilization and they walked until dark but eventually they made it nice back in the settlement leo ryan and the media begrudgingly took a tour of jonestown given to them by Marcelin, and then they began the interviews the park's family of seven told nbc that they were being held against their will and wanted to return to the united states Jones was asked about this on camera, and he insisted that the people who claimed to be held against their will were lying and that, (laughs) right, of course, (laughs) and that everyone who was there really wanted to be there. But he conceded if anyone wanted to leave, they would be allowed to. So as the defectors gathered their belongings, the weather shifted and darkness settled over Jonestown. According to Tim Carter, it felt like evil blowing into Jonestown. Then six more people decided they wanted to leave. Fights broke out as children refused to leave with their parents. There were fathers who decided that they wanted to leave with their children, whether or not the mothers were coming with. And it had already been like kind of a miracle that everybody was able to fit on such a small plane to get to Port Kaituma. Like not everyone from Georgetown went to Jonestown, but like it was kind of a tight squeeze on this plane that they were able to get there. But now, now they had 15 additional people who were wanting to fly out. So there was no way that one plane could do it. And so a second plane was ordered to fly to the airstrip to pick up the defectors. Most everyone was eventually loaded onto the flatbed trucks to be taken to the airstrip. And at the last minute, Larry Layton also decided that he wanted to come. And this struck some as suspicious since leighton was incredibly loyal to jones and had never voiced a dissatisfaction in jonestown so it's kind of so was he
0: kind of like a mole like trying to go in with the defectors to keep an eye on them Mm, he wasn't trying to keep an eye on them oh yeah oh it's more malicious than that it's far more
1: malicious than that yeah oh okay so i say that most everyone was put on these flatbed trucks because Leo Ryan had decided to hang back to help some of the people sort out whether or not they were staying or going. Like, he seriously still didn't think that, like, there was a whole lot of danger. He was like, well, you, you heard the man. You're allowed to leave if you want to. So it's fine. Right. You'll, we'll just wait for the second wave. We'll wait for more planes. It's fine. We, we'll figure this out. And this is despite the fact that Debbie Layton, before he left for Guyana, was like, you need to be careful. Jim Jones is not going to let people leave. He is not going to be okay with anybody leaving, and you going is putting yourself in danger. Mm. So he's just chilling in the pavilion, thinking everything's fine. And he didn't see the man charging him from behind with a knife. The man was able to put the knife to the congressman's throat, but then he hesitated. And in that moment, Tim Carter and two other men were able to pull the knife away. And in doing so, they cut the man's hand and Leo Ryan was just showered in blood. So now he's like, I'm getting out of here. I gotta go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We gotta get out of here. The trucks still hadn't really been able to leave Jonestown yet because it had rained and the dirt road was muddy. So they were stuck in the mud and they were being pushed out with a tractor trailer and so ryan was just able to run and catch up and hop on the truck it was like fucking peace out jones obviously had ordered this attack this first attack on ryan and was upset that it hadn't worked so his final plan began to be put into action he radioed his sons in georgetown and gave them the code you're going to meet mr Fraser," which the sons knew everybody who used to the radios knew the code and this meant that everyone was about to die Hmm. So Jim Jr. argued, but he was told that he needed to follow instruction. Instead, he went to the movie theater where his brothers and the rest of the basketball team were and brought them back to the Georgetown headquarters. Immediately, Stephen Jones began to attempt to talk the situation down. He also instructed the San Francisco office, which had received the same orders, everybody's received the same orders over the radio, to not do anything until he had talked to them. Okay,
0: so he's stepping up and trying to take hold of the situation and save people.
1: He is. Okay. Okay. So the trucks reached the airstrip an hour later, and one plane could only hold 19 people, and the other could only hold five people. So they still had to decide who would go of the 33 people and who would have to stay and go back overnight and, you know, wait it out and wait for more planes. And basically, everyone, like, the the newscasters were like we have a story that we need to get editing right away we can't stay and the defectors were like there's no fucking way that we are I'm going back
0: another yeah. night
1: and so they're talking and they're trying to figure it out and larry Layton asked to be put on the first plane of five people they included leo ryan and as you know they're like okay whatever larry sure we don't care what plane you're on whatever a truck pulls up and they're, you know, they're dividing people into the planes. And Ryan was giving a final interview for the, I'm not sure which news station, but he was giving a final interview. And everybody was sort of idling. And then gunmen popped out of the bed. And mm-hmm. at the same time that the gunmen popped out on the airstrip, Larry was inside the smaller plane and he started shooting. And the gunmen start shooting at the people in the tarmac. And mm-hmm. the plan was that Larry was supposed to wait until the plane had taken off with Leo Ryan in it and then he was supposed to shoot the pilot while the plane was in the air and that would kill everyone who was on the plane including uh, Leo Ryan right but so he was sent on a suicide mission himself he was but with the two planes and everything jones knew that like he couldn't he couldn't take care of he couldn't kill both planes full of people he wanted to make sure that like the business got taken care of and so jones sent the additional gunmen in the truck and it's it was chaos, obviously, like the gunmen, they shot Patricia Parks in the back of the head. She wasn't supposed to die, but she she died out like immediately. And then people were trying to run and hide behind parts of the plane like they were trying to hide behind the tires and they were trying to like run into the jungle. But it's it's a fucking tarmac. It's an airstrip. So it's just wide open wide open. Yeah, there's and nowhere it, to hide. Right. And there other were, than the plane. Right. Right, and there's shooting happening in one of the planes. Right. So there were Guyanese soldiers who were present and armed, but they just watched because they were like, we are not getting involved in this American drama. We're Mm -hmm. not going to have anything come back and be pinned on Guyana.
0: Yeah, not my cows, not my bullshit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the shooting, it didn't last for very long, but the people who were injured and were just laying on the airstrip, they were shot again. So Jackie Spear, the assistant to the congressman, she was shot, like, point blank. And I don't remember where she was shot, but she should not have lived, and she did miraculously. Oh, wow. And then Layton's gun, it was pretty quickly taken because, I mean, a shootout, like, it just takes seconds. And so his his gun was taken away, and, you know, some people on the smaller plane, they were injured, but they were doing okay. And they were spared because the gunmen didn't come into the plane to— You know double tap or anything they just shot the people on the airstrip and then they they got out of there in total five were dead including congressman leo ryan cameraman bob brown reporter don harris photographer greg robinson and defector patricia parks anthony katsaris steve sung and congressional aide jackie spear were all seriously wounded the pilot of the smaller plane took off with the other pilot And only Monica Bagsby, who had been shot by Leighton and was just bleeding, whatever, and injured on the plane, managed to be on that flight as they took off. Everyone else had to wait at Port Kaituma overnight for another plane to arrive, with five bodies lying dead Mm -hmm. on the tarmac. Did another plane come for them, though, eventually? Eventually, yeah. Okay. Eventually. Okay. Back in Jonestown, a meeting was called by Jones. Tim Carter overheard some some conversations between Jim Jones and Maria Katsaris that are not included on the death tape. And it was Jim Jones saying, is there a way to make it less bitter? And Maria shook her head and Jim Jones says, is it quick? And Maria says, yeah, it's really quick and it's not supposed to be painful at all. And Jones says, okay, do what you can to make it taste better. Now, Tim Mm. Carter, he has an idea of what's going on, but I think that there's like strong denial happening, because this is such an outrageous situation. Surreal, yeah, yeah, situation happening. yeah. But of course, they were discussing the mixture of flavor aid, tranquilizers, and cyanide that Larry Schacht had concocted and had been perfecting, for lack of a better word, over the last couple of months on pigs. Tim Carter began making an escape as soon as he realized what was happening, but Maria Katsaris took him aside and sent him and his brother on a mission to take money to the Soviet embassy which is a plan I don't understand because in the death tape, Jim Jones explains to Christine Miller how the Soviets don't want them now because they have no value anymore because they shot and killed the congressman. And then Maria Katsouras, when she pulls them aside and hands them the money, she says, have a nice life, don't get taken alive. If you're caught, kill yourselves, is that understood? Mm.
0: So she's like,
1: you do this and you're done. Just get out, I don't care, see you later, see you never. Yeah. This is basically when the death tape starts, and I won't be playing parts of the death tape. You can go listen to that if you want to, but we're not gonna be playing parts of the death tape on here. The driver of the truck comes into the pavilion and announces the congressman was dead, and Larry Schacht and the nurses lined up with syringes to the side of the pavilion, and then Jim Jones refers to it as medicine. Let's get the children their medicine, because it was the children who went first. Mm. And so Tim Carter, he returns from speaking with Maria Katsaris. She, you know, she pulled him aside and Jim Jones starts all of this. He returns only to find his son Malcolm being given a syringe of cyanide straight into his mm. mouth. Fuck. Carter theorized that because another member was like regularly given medication in, in cheese sandwiches in order to be tranquilized, and everyone in Jonestown was given cheese sandwiches for lunch that day, that everyone in Jonestown may have actually been pre-drugged, and they were more susceptible mm. to the situation. Less likely to fight back and yeah. cause yeah. a ruckus. Yeah. And Leslie Wagner, she escaped into the jungle that day with her child. But she explained that everybody was already susceptible because they were exhausted at first, before the children started dying. They weren't sure that it was real. Like, things were obviously bad because of everything with the congressman. But it's like, maybe but maybe this is not, you know? It's
0: another drill because they had been quote-unquote poisoned two times before this. Right. So why not think that it's another fake, you know, fake
1: situation? Right. But then also her last point is, like, what were the alternatives? Like, you could be shot by the guards. You could be made to drink first. Like, what were the alternatives that they had? Right. And also, what were people going to do once their children had been taken from them? Like, once the babies had been given cyanide into their mouth and died, you know? And, like logistically it made sense as like kind of crass and like cold-hearted it sounds to like talk about the logistics of a massacre but it made it made sense to kill the children first because otherwise who else would kill them afterwards like you have to kill the children before you kill the adults right
0: because the babies are just gonna go what oh yeah it's my turn now right they're not gonna kill each other yeah but and, then... well and it gives the parent like
1: the parents are like, Well, what else do I have to live for? Exactly. Exactly. And so once you've killed the children, the parents are like, Okay, fine, sure. Fuck it. Let's let's roll out. Yeah. And of course, like people who were skeptical of the accounts of the survivors later on, they asked Tim Carter, like, Well, why didn't you tip over the VAT? If you saw what was going on, why didn't you tip over the VAT? And at this point there was no VAT. When the children were being killed, mm. their parents were given the option to go with them, but it was all like syringes through the mouth there was no vat that had been brought out yet okay and so carter's son died in his wife's arms his wife had taken the cyanide at the same time as her son and she died in carter's arms all before he was able to intervene he still had his mission and so he was allowed to leave without the threat of being shot and once he his wife and his kid were dead he was like "Fuck it i'm getting out of here i'm not sticking around for this bullshit."
0: and what was his mission his mission to get
1: out of there to take the, his... the money to the Soviet embassy. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, now that we've got gotten to the depths, I think now is a good place to finally, finally talk about the toxicology and the poison.
0: Let's do this.
1: And we didn't talk about the toxicity of cyanide with the Nazis and the to- concentration camps, because that was intentional. I felt that it would be a little much to talk about it in terms of The gas chambers. Yeah. Yeah. But I want people to truly understand what was happening at Jonestown. Because to have almost a thousand people take cyanide takes a long time. Logistically, it takes a very long time to just dole out that many doses. But it's also not like people didn't know what was happening. They didn't fight back. Like, it was a fucking nightmare what was happening when the cyanide was brought out. So... Cyanide induces toxicity by preferentially binding to an iron-containing enzyme complex, cytochrome oxidase, in the mitochondria of cells, preventing cellular respiration. Meaning, it kills by denying oxygen and water to the body, but on a cellular level. It leads to cellular hypoxia and the depletion of ATP, which in turn causes metabolic acidosis. The available oxygen in the body becomes completely consumed, and then once that runs out, vital functions of the body begin to fail. It can also preferentially bind to the iron center of methemoglobin, preventing the creation of oxyhemoglobin, much in the same way that carbon monoxide does, causing victims Mm -hmm. to turn cherry red as they first begin to seize, then choke to death as their respiration fails. But it can take minutes for the heart to stop. Although academic and military literature suggests that cyanide can induce death in about four minutes, victims of cyanide poisoning, such as those in Jonestown and the gas chambers of Auschwitz, could suffer for upwards of 20 minutes while frothing at the mouth. Larry Schacht, in his note to Jones, acknowledged himself that it could take three hours for the the Mm. poison to kill. When inhaled, as in the gas chambers, the effects can begin within seconds. The lethal dose of hydrogen cyanide is about 100 milligrams per kilogram, while the LD50 for potassium cyanide used in Jonestown is 200 milligrams per kilogram. However, because of the ability to diffuse into the bloodstream when inhaled or injected, cyanide acts on the body more quickly via those routes of administration versus oral ingestion. And this, I think, is part of why some of the people who refused to drink the poison in Jonestown were injected via syringe with cyanide because it would because
0: it would just kill them more quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: So where does cyanide come from? Well, we talked in cyanide part one about how it was first isolated from the Prussian blue dye, but it can also be extracted from things like almonds, lima beans, things like that. It's also it's used, and so therefore it's found in manufacturing and industrial sources like insecticides, photographic solutions, things like that, jewelry cleaners. So that was all stuff that was mentioned in the first episode as a use that it found industrially. But that's also why Larry shacked part of why he was able to get it from the Eli Lilly company is because it had legitimate mm. uses. Gotcha. And cyanide poisoning, just while we're finally talking about it, It can result from a variety of exposures in the normal, normal world, including structural fires. You know, there's the industrial exposures as well. But most of the deaths that occur nowadays because of cyanide are because of fires that release cyanide because of whatever Mm -hmm. combustion of materials.
0: And so earlier they would said that there's an antidote for Mm -hmm. cyanide, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So what's the route of administration for the antidote and how quickly does it need to be administered for it to be successful?
1: So the kit that Larry Schacht referred to was sodium nitrite and sodium thiosulfate. Sodium nitrite can be given via IV for three to five minutes in adults, and usually that's fine. And then a smaller dose can be given for children, but also for the same amount of time. And then sodium thiosulfate is an ampule that you take or you can give it intravenously for 30 minutes. And it kind of depends on how quickly the cyanide itself acts because if it takes a few seconds for it to kick in, you don't have a whole lot of time to administer an antidote. But if you're suffering for 20 minutes or an hour or longer, so Mm -hmm. it just depends. Like it's obviously one of those things that you want to address as soon as possible, but your window might be very small. Um, And then this is, it doesn't pertain as much to Jonestown or anything like that, but because usually you are exposed to cyanide because of a fire, you'll usually be given hydroxycobalamin. And that's the first choice of antidote, just because it also helps with coexisting carbon monoxide poisoning. And so, oh, when, from a fire, when gotcha. you're breathing in that smoke, it will help with both. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. During my research, i i looked at a lot of material i looked at a lot of material and i watched all of the documentaries that i could and there was this one that was put on by a and e that was like the the women of jonestown or whatever it was called and it was basically saying that there were four women who could be blamed for jonestown it was carolyn and annie moore maria katsaris and marceline and like i do hold the people in the inner circle responsible because they prepared the solutions and they talked about the best way to go but they they were just so like it was just these four women and like marceline's silence on the whole matter like essentially made her more guilty than jones and it's like he literally ordered people to kill himself i think that her silence maybe had less to do with
0: the yeah the massacre i but, mean she she was a part of it but i don't think she was like the like instrument of it, like right. a vital instrument of it she was a co-conspirator mm-hmm. just by by association she right. she didn't say like you know what we should do right we should get everybody to we should kill everybody
1: right and like, like in that documentary they don't to- they don't talk about larry layton killing like getting on the plane and trying to kill anybody and they don't talk about the gunman on the the airstrip so it's like we're just right. gonna blame these four women that doesn't yeah, doesn't look that great. Seems... No. And, like, Marceline did try to stop. On the death tape, if you listen to it, there's a point where Jones says, Mother, 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 don't do this, don't do this, lay down your life with your child, but don't do this. And Stephen Jones believes that that is Jim Jones talking to her, because he was father mm-hmm. or dad and she mm-hmm. was mother. And... Jones had already told Marceline that her children in Georgetown, that Stephen and Jim and Tim, they had heard the call and they were already dead. And then mm. Lou Which is not the case. No, it wasn't the case, but I I mean she I doubt he gave her access to the radio room at this point. Sure. Sure. And then her son Lou, her daughter Agnes, and five of her grandchildren were in Jonestown being forced to take the poison. So, like, what what was Marceline going to do? She could have tried to say something, yes, but I just, like, I feel like at this point... the trains, in too deep. The trains run away, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Stephen believed, believes that he and Tim would have tried to stop it if they were in town. Like, he sincerely believes that. And he did, he did do a lot to stop what he could, so maybe he would have. But I think that... Stephen Jones and possibly Tim Tupper, who I couldn't read a whole lot of firsthand account from. But maybe they're putting a little too much on themselves on their own shoulders to say that they could have stopped the whole thing. Like, I don't because I don't I don't think that it would have been possible. They would have been forcibly killed. Like, I yeah. think that if they were actively trying to stop it, they would have shot them probably. And Jim Jr. believes that he would have said if he was in Jones at the time and not in Georgetown, he would have probably said something like, I'm tired of this shit, fine, all right, I'll drink your goddamn poison. Because he knew that his wife and mother already did. So he thinks that Mm. he would have just been like, okay, let's just get this over with. So Um. I don't know, who's to say. While this was all going on, like I said, it took a very long time, children first, and it was just chaos. And some people were able to escape. The ones in the infirmary and in the middle of the pavilion weren't as lucky. The ones in the infirmary were forcibly given cyanide, and the ones in the middle of the pavilion, they had too many eyes on them. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, there were some people who were able to get out, escape into the jungle, whatever. And on the death tape, you do hear people who, even after the children begin to die and seethe and seize and foam at the mouth. That you you can still hear people who are, like, praising Jones and saying, like, they'll go with him no matter, no matter what. And these are just the most vocal supporters. These are just the people who got right. on the microphone. Like, I talked to you a bit, like, in the middle of all the research, and I was like, we've both been a part of, like, a, a fairly large group. Not a thousand-person large group, but we were both part of, like, derby teams that were pretty large. And mm-hmm. even we've seen people who are just, like, super vocal for shit that were like, shut the f- up you know right right so the people on the microphone like when you listen to the death tape it does sound like what people want to say for Jonestown where it's like oh a bunch of people just willingly went to their deaths a handful of very vocal supporters were okay with it not the majority yeah the majority of people saw what was happening and they were horrified and some were like in the middle, not sure, you know, they, they were just tired and didn't have any alternative, but it was just bedlam at this point, like hell has broken loose. And it, it was the same in Georgetown because Steven and Tim and Jim, they were running all over Georgetown to the headquarters there and the U.S. Embassy, and they were trying to do damage control to save as many lives as they could. While they were out of the headquarters, a die-hard loyalist named Sharon Amos was able to sneak away with four children, three of them were hers, and then one was an adult child. And there was a somewhat slow adult who was known to follow orders readily. His name was Chuck Beekman, and so she brought Chuck Beekman with her. And she ordered Beekman to slit their throat with knives, because that's what Jones had ordered the people outside oh. of Jonestown to do. The child who wasn't hers was the only survivor. And then 19 year old Steven Jones would later be blamed for these deaths and was actually held in Guyanese prison and then taken to court over it. Oh my gosh. And while he was on trial in court, he's fucking tired. He's lost to damn near everybody he's ever known. And he finally says, all right, I did it. I killed those people and I'm trying to put it off on Chuck. Like he loses <sighs> it on the stand. Later he says, I was aggravated and I was mad. I have been accused of killing my family, two beautiful children, I am tired and I haven't said the half of what the police did to us. I'm so tired of being pushed.
0: Well, and that's what I was going to say is that when people are under duress mm-hmm. and they're like forced confessions are a thing like yeah. and happen not as uncommonly as people think like. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, at some point he's just going to get
1: throw his hands up and say, yeah, I fucking did it. Like, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm over this shit. <laughs> it's like. And the reality was that Stephen Jones was a fucking hero, because that night, while everything was happening and before he'd been arrested, he called San Francisco every half hour and told them not to kill themselves. And nobody in San Francisco followed through. Nice. Well, thank you, Stephen. Way to go. Thank you, Stephen. The last people to go were the people in Jones's inner circle, some of whom drank and injected themselves both because they wanted to show their loyalty up to the end. They were also in charge of shooting all of the animals that were in the settlement, including the chimp, Mr. Muggs. Jones was probably shot second to last, either by suicide or likely by Annie Moore, according to survivors in the jungle who were just waiting until everything settled. The time between the second to last and the last shot, which was Annie Moore's suicide, was hours. So Annie was fixing up everything and doing the last bit of preparation before She shot herself. Wow. 909 people, including Jim Jones, were killed in Jonestown. Five were killed on the airstrip. Four in Georgetown. Eighty-seven others managed to escape into the jungle or were safely away in Georgetown at the time. 304 of the victims in Jonestown were children.
0: That is so tragic.
1: And then the tragedy just continued when the investigation began. Because of the isolation and the confusion, authorities did not make it to Jonestown until the next day, November 19th. The heat had already begun rapidly decomposing the bodies, and insect activity was prevalent. Because of decomposition, it was difficult to ascertain who had physical wounds, so they couldn't tell who was bruised, who was forcibly injected, unless Mm -hmm. the needle was still in them. In some cases, it was. The body identification and count fluctuated because of the sheer enormity and the weather. At first count, they had so many, and then at the next count, they found more. Children were found underneath adults, and so they did their first count of adults, put the bodies up, and then they found the children underneath. Hmm. And then there was a rainstorm that washed away the numbers on the bodies, and so then they had to start over with their counts. (laughs) The first autopsy was conducted on Leo Ryan in Guyana on the 20th of November, and an external autopsy was conducted on Jones on November 23rd. 409 bodies remained unidentified, and autopsies were only conducted on seven members in December after having been embalmed. Mm. These included a second autopsy of Jones and then an autopsy of Carolyn and Annie Moore. At this point, it was hard to determine if cyanide was the cause of death for Carolyn and others because of a lack of bodily fluids after embalming. Tox was drawn originally and tested in Guyana and perhaps also by a U.S. toxicologist, but it was further complicated because of the decomposition, and the body Mm. actually does produce cyanide post-mortem. Oh,
0: okay. So it'd be hard to detect, like, was this cyanide that they took as a part of the killing or is this the naturally occurring from decomposition?
1: Right, and in the Poisoner's Handbook by Deborah Blum, she actually talks about that when we first started trying to test for cyanide in the 1920s. But it's even further complicated because cyanide is rapidly destroyed in tissues post-mortem. So if it's present that it's destroyed and can fall below the limit of quantitation, but then the formation of cyanide post-mortem can actually rise to toxicologically relevant levels. And this is especially true of specimens kept at above negative 20 degrees Celsius. And these bodies mm. were out in the heat of the jungle for days. Right. So the main source that they were able to ascertain the cyanide from was from the syringes at the scene. And then no one wanted to accept the bodies for burial that were unidentified and couldn't be claimed because the government wanted families of victims to pay for them to be shipped. To oh. the United States and then around the United States at something like seven hundred and fifty dollars each, and some families, well, and especially had... if they're not even identified, what well, like... well, and once they were identified, some family members had like multiple people, multiple family members who were in the People's right. Temple, and they're like, we can't shell out thousands of dollars for that because that doesn't include burial, even that just includes shipment. right, like right, like we don't have the money for that's tr-
0: Ugh, that's even more tragic. It's fucked up.
1: So eventually, the 409 unidentified bodies were accepted and interred at the Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland on the 11th of May, 1979. Wow. Prior to that, on December 6th, 1978, the People's Temple was officially dissolved. Larry Layton was indicted for murder and kept in prison in Guyana for two years, awaiting death by hanging. Eventually, he had two trials in the United States and was convicted of conspiracy to murder the Congressman Leo Ryan. He spent 18 years in prison and was finally released after an appeal that included the testimony of Vern Gosney, whom he shot, but still insisted that Larry deserved his freedom. Wow. He was the only person to be convicted of crimes in Jonestown. That's another tragedy. Mm Mm-hmm. The inner circle at Jonestown wanted people to see them as revolutionary. Annie Moore's suicide note famously ended with the line, We died because you would not let us live. But she was one of the people who would not let others live. The true survivors of Jonestown, who can relate to the victims, want Jonestown to be remembered for all the good they did, for the genuine good changes they were hoping to make and see reflected in the world. They don't want their loved ones to have died in vain. Rather than add hatred and ignorance to the world, their story should be helping us learn something and do better. And for that reason, I say, fuck the people who say don't drink the Kool-Aid. And fuck the people who, even when you tell them it wasn't Kool-Aid, don't care. The fact that they're even saying that it was Kool-Aid, like, you don't know the first fucking thing about what you're talking about. Right. And it's so harmful to just, like, boil down... that everybody... Yeah. To boil down this horrible nightmare experience to just fucking some cliche thing that is supposed to suggest that we easily give in to persuasion. Like there were so many steps to get people to to a fucking massacre it wasn't mass suicide either it was a massacre
0: right like and that's something that i think gets overlooked a lot like Mm -hmm. i mean i before i learned more about jonestown i thought that it was something like like heaven's gate where it was more of a suicide like everybody was in you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like everybody wanted to die for whatever reason i didn't even know the reason why i just thought They all drank the Kool-Aid. They all wanted to die. But that's not the case. Like, there were people who wanted to live. There were people who did not sign up for this. And like you said, only a handful of people were actually willing participants.
1: Yeah. And I mean, almost everybody came to the People's Temple and stayed in the People's Temple out of some sort of desperation or out of some sort of want to do better, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, like, yeah, it, it was a cult. Like, you can't really get around that. Like a cult has been described as best as I could find. Like they're charismatic groups. They have a shared like belief system, you know, and then further they're led by somebody who's charismatic and the whole cult is kind of centered around them. And there's the isolation and all the stuff that we covered. But Tim Carter said, we weren't a cult. We were a social movement. We were revolutionaries. That's what they believed in. There were just so many things that... I don't know so many missteps along the way yeah that led to this
0: i mean because there was a time like you said where things were they were changing lives for
1: the better they were making differences in communities Mm -hmm. there there was a time there There was yes and rebecca moore who is another person who contributes regularly to the jonestown newsletter and the jonestown website She said that cult is an expression reserved for those religions of which we disapprove, which like, yeah, there are certain other new religious movements or organizations that could be called cults. And we don't call them that because we're okay with whatever weird shit they do. They're they're normalized Mm -hmm. or something. But I don't know. There's just like red flags that you need to look out for, you know, Mm -hmm. and even like the Cult Awareness Network, which was an organization overseen by Leo Ryan's daughter, Patricia Ryan, like they kind of became a cult. Like she oh, started really? she started the whole thing because her dad died and then she was later she thought that the CIA brainwashed the people of Jonestown MK Ultra style. And then later said that the Branch branch Davidians should be dealt with by whatever means necessary, including Leo Force. So it's like she oscillated between these two thoughts. And then it's just like, (laughs) okay, both of those are bananas. Both of those are like, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you're you're running the gamut there.
1: (laughs) And I do encourage people to go to that Jonestown website and read the accounts of their survivors, because there was only so much I could put into this episode. This episode has been so long already. I know I keep saying that, but it has been so long to research and record. And I wanted to end it on a quote from a survivor, but there's just so many survivors that all have such good things to say. I think people should go search those out. And so where I'm going to end us is the quote that the New West article ended with, because it just. I think that it could still be seen as having hope. Like, even though Jonestown ended in a massacre and the People's Temple ended in a massacre, I think that there can still be hope for change. The story of Jim Jones and his People's Temple is not over. In fact, it has only begun to be told. If there is any solace to be gained from the tale of exploitation and human foible told by the former Temple members in these pages, it is that even such a power as Jim Jones cannot always contain his followers. Those who left had nowhere to go and every reason to fear pursuit. Yet they persevered. If Jones is ever to be stripped of his power, it will not be because of vendetta or persecution, but rather because of the courage of these people who stepped forward and spoke out.
0: Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For
0: an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more.
1: The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fog Weaver. More of their music can be found on Bandcamp.com.
0: Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineco. Stay safe, and
1: remember, the dose makes the poison.